0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. Uh, I've worked at the temple for about the past decade now, and I can really attest to the the quality of the work they do, the the space that they hold, and uh, the beauty of the lineage that they work with. Uh, Predominantly, they're working with the plant medicine ayahuasca in a lineage of the Shipibo people, which are one of the indigenous groups of people to the Amazon who have a really long history of working with these plants. And they run uh, workshops of 12 days. Uh, In those 12 days, there's six ceremonies working with uh, four different healers or indigenous doctors, a facilitator, which is kind of like the bridge between the guests that come down and the doctors. Uh, They offer pre-ceremony yoga classes. They work with uh, massage people, bone doctors, herbalists. So it's really just an amazing support staff. Uh, They create an amazing set and setting that really allows people to go very deeply into this work and to... Uh, experience uh, the, the the healing benefits, the learning benefits of, of what these plants really have to offer. So if you'd like more information on the temple, you can check out their website at templeofthewayoflight.org. There'll be a link in the show notes. They've unfortunately been closed since March of 2020 due to the pandemic, but they're scheduled to reopen in August of this year, 2021. Um, This episode is also being sponsored by my friends over at Ecstatic Dance Online, um, which is an online transformational dance experience brought to you through the magic of Zoom. Uh, Ecstatic Dance Online was founded by my friend Rafael and his partner Elena. And they say in one hour and 45 minutes, you'll receive a short but potent opening ceremony followed by an hour of an ecstasy inducing expertly crafted DJ set finishing with a closing integration and a friendly open space for community and sharing. Each week, the dance ceremony takes on a new and interesting theme. They bring in a variety of guest DJs from around the world, Uh, You will hear all different genres of music in an exciting tempo to stoke your inner alchemical fire. Uh, Raphael is a certified ecstatic dance DJ from Canada who is a dancer himself. He focuses on the importance of the inner work on processing emotions and feelings and guides in the healing process with his music. And Elena is a passionate dancer herself and a true nomad she brings her vast ecstatic dance experience love of life and skills as a certified dance movement therapist to the opening and closing settings Uh, i had the chance to participate in one and i think they create a a really beautiful space Uh, so if you're interested in Ecstatic Dance. Check them out. Uh, the link to the website and all of the music will also be in the show notes. And then finally, uh, myself and my friend and colleague, Marav Artsy, who I interviewed in episode 28, will be continuing to run diets, dietas, here in the Sacred Valley of Peru. And that's the one of the traditional processes in which uh, the, the aspirant or the um, and the, the, the person coming down has a chance to, to go into isolation, uh, a period of fasting, meditation, concentration, uh, and ingesting one of these medicinal and teacher plants to really begin to, to learn from them and also to heal from them. Uh, so it's a really beautiful way to deepen one's relationship with plants, plant medicine, the plant world, uh, and to experience all that has to offer. Um, so if you're interested in that, uh, you can check out some of my other uh, interviews. I interviewed Marav, again, I believe it was episode 28. Uh, and then some of the earlier episodes, I, I did a, a, an introduction to the process of dieting uh, and also an episode on tobacco, which is uh, one of the, the, the main tools that we use in that dieting process. Um, so our next diet uh, Will have probably already started when this comes out. Uh, we're doing a diet in the month of May, uh, and then we have another one coming up in the month of September. So, for more information on that, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org and Morav's site at tobaccoDiets.com. There'll be a link to both of those in the show notes. My guest on today's episode is my friend Bill Park. I met uh, Bill probably about a decade now when I when I first arrived in the Amazon uh, and from the start, I, I found him very fascinating. Um, we we share a little bit of a similar story. Um, he had a real fascination with the Amazon, with nature. Uh, and as we get into the podcast, he uh, kind of inadvertently came across this group of people called the Motses people, who, as he said, actually saved him and his companion. Uh, and that really opened him up to uh, really beginning to to learn about the Motses, uh, their... their 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 needs, their worldviews, um, um, and and really just uh, seeing some of the. Um, issues that they're facing, it, it really opened him to, uh, I think, also these ideas of permaculture, of looking into climate change, and it, it really led him on a really beautiful journey. Um, I always really enjoy talking to to Bill. We, we often talk for hours uh, in some of my spare time in Iquitos when I have a little bit of time off and we meet for dinner. Uh, luckily, this podcast didn't go uh, the, the the normal length of our conversations. I think it's a little bit over two hours, but I have a lot of respect for for Bill, and uh, I think he's a true philosopher. He's someone who's thought very deeply about a lot of these ideas and and really lives it through a real world experience and putting these things into action uh and i think like a lot of wise people he has this ability to take very seemingly complex ideas uh and and transmute them into things that are quite simple to understand and learn which i think is a real gift so i hope you enjoy this episode um as always if you're able to support this podcast patreon is a really beautiful way um it allows me to continue to bring on really fascinating guests like Bill. It's a subscription service for as little as a dollar a month you can subscribe and there's a few different tiers and with those tiers you get different things back so it's a really nice idea of reciprocity um, and getting things back like early access to shows, Q&As, bonus material. Uh, so if you're able to do that, that's a, a very big help and very deeply appreciated to all the people who have done that, all the patron, Patreon supporters, uh, patrons I guess they're called. Thank you very much. I deeply appreciate that. Um, There's also the ability to donate via PayPal. There'll be a link to that also in the show notes. And then if you're not able to do that, simply going on the YouTube page, uh, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, uh, that really helps with the algorithms and getting the show out to a bigger audience. Feel free to leave any questions or comments in the comments section. Let me know what you guys think. And then with the audio version going on Apple Podcasts, subscribing to the show, and leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's also a really big help with the audio version and getting that out to a bigger audience. So I think that's it. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Bill Park. cool man it's good to see you uh welcome welcome to the show I, i've got a show now
1: <laughs> well congratulations on the show and uh it's great to be here and thank you for inviting me
0: yeah man so um i met you i, I don't know a, a number of years ago now i mean it's, it's probably been close to a decade now um the the age is 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 wearing on both of our faces a little bit um but i i hey, met yo, you <laughs> Uh, Probably the first time I met you was, I don't know, maybe at at a a little restaurant in Iquitos called Dawn of the Amazon. I I don't know how we first connected. I I don't remember that. But uh, I mean, we we seemed to hit it off right away. And I was really interested in the work you were doing. I I was working at a big plant medicine center, the Temple of the Way of Light. And uh, so maybe just to start, um, just to introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, I, I mean, this is always a big question. And but who you are, where you come from, and, and how you found yourself in the in the Peruvian Amazon.
1: Okay, so uh, so I grew up in uh, uh, Bronxville, New York, which is uh, kind of in between the Long Island Sound and the Hudson River, near the Bronx River, uh, near uh, uh, you know like about 17 miles from uh, Midtown Manhattan. And so as a, as a kid, I was always uh, wanting to be in nature. So everything was, you know, the nature is very fragmented. So maybe a strip of trees along the Bronx River or just uh, like a half of a block that had some forest on it. So I was always, uh, you know, enjoyed that. And, you know, like finding bugs and, you know, looking at birds and all that kind of stuff. And so, but I always had this uh, desire to like see what I at the time believed to be, you know, real nature. So, so basically like the primeval world, a world uh, untouched by humans. And so, uh, so kind of looking at the map and you know, I always wanted to uh, you know, so the Amazon. There's a place that might have uh, fit that uh, description. And so on the map, there's this vast, vast area that's just empty on the map. And that uh, spans uh, you know, Peru along the frontier with Brazil. So uh, I had a buddy and uh, we said, hey, let's, let's do this crazy, uh, this crazy trip and go into the uncharted, unknown, great uh, wilderness. So we, so we said, hey, but, you know, we're just gonna do this thing. And so we, uh, we set out, you know, to do this trip. And well, the idea was to start on the Ucayali River and then walk across, kind of passing by the Galvez and then onto the Tepeche River. And then float back to the Upiali on the Tapiche. and so it would have uh, been about uh, two weeks of uh, walking in the jungle. And so, uh, so you know, we had a guide and uh, you know a helper, and uh, kind of like a Iquitos uh, Boulevard uh, kind of guides. And so, uh, so we you know and had like a big uh, backpack with way too much stuff in it. I had my uh, jungle boots, special leather jungle boots that I thought were gonna be you know, perfect. And uh, so, you know, there we go. So we start walking and, uh, you know, it's just a r- amazing experience. So the terrain is actually very difficult. Like, uh, you know, it seems uh, flat from a distance, but once under the canopy in this area, it's actually very hilly. So you kind of go up uh, up hills, and there are lots of fallen logs. So you have to kind of scramble over the logs, under the log, and then down, you know, it's slippery. And then in the bottom lands, they're typically like kind of swampy areas with uh, very deep mud. And then the whole thing is uh, laced with uh, little streams. So those have to be crossed, usually by walking across a log, kind of a slippery log. So we're, we're cruising along and, uh, you know, things are going well. And uh, just uh, you know, amazing all the all the animals, the plants, so much life, you know, everything just teeming with life, every shape, every color, just uh, you know, really uh, just beautiful. And you know, at, at night, you know, we had these uh, uh, jungle hammocks, which uh, you've seen, and uh, you know, basically with an enclosed uh, mosquito net, so you kind of get in there from the bottom and seal yourself in. And then the sounds at night are just uh, unbelievable, so loud like that, almost like being in a nightclub or something. So if you're sitting next to someone, you have to speak with a raised voice and just you know every pitch and uh, frequency you could imagine all at once. It's kind of this feeling of just everything just around you. And uh, and even like uh, there, there's a, uh, uh, some uh, like a type of hawk that makes a, a sound, a call that sounds just like a human. So, like on our first night, there we are in our hammocks, and imagine like uh, if you were like a person, you know, screaming like uh, with the most like uh, urgent uh, voice, like a desperation, like a primal desperation. And so it sounded like yelling, Raúl. So we hear this thing, Raúl. And so uh, we came, like, you know, looking for our lights and kind of bumbling out of our hammocks and shining around, who's Raul, what's he doing out here? This is, and and of course, you know, the guys were just, you know, laughing hysterically and say, relax, relax. There's no uh, Raul, uh, the type of uh, hawk that's calling. And so, you know, but this, you know, I'm trying to like, everything is just, uh, you know, intense. Like so many colors, shapes, uh, you know, amazing, you know, monkeys, birds you know, just, uh, unusual, uh, uh, animals. So, you know, we're, so we keep uh, going the next day we're plowing along everything's uh, going great. And, uh, one of the things about, uh, the jungle that I'm sure some of your viewers know is that because of the humidity in the air, when you sweat, the sweating does not cool you off because it doesn't evaporate. So it can't, there's no evaporative cooling. So you're just sweating. So we had, uh, uh you know like a little uh, packets of uh like uh hydration stuff that w- was it wasn't real so we were drinking that and then you know we had this idea to drink uh like uh, incredible amounts of water you know the water filter the whole thing and so just uh if anyone's there I mean uh the, the solution is us uh, real salt tablets like that uh, welders use so so you know so we were just sweating like crazy and uh and uh, by the third day, my uh, friend started to have a lot of uh, cramping, and uh, you, know, it was, you know, started to go a little slower. And then uh, I think on the fourth day, so you know, we're remember now we're four days walking from nowhere in the middle of the forest. So there's no there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. This is you know, it's real. So uh, like uh, we're walking along, and he he ducked all of a sudden and said, "Look out!" a missile. I was like, okay, like, and I thought he was like, kind of kidding around or it was going to be some kind of joke and, uh, but but he seemed very serious and seemed to be getting a little bit disoriented and it kind of progressed with more uh, missiles and then he was actually starting to talk to people so he would like stop to rest and lean up against a tree and, you know, we're looking at him and, you know, he's having a conversation with someone kind of like, that. no, I told him, you know, I can just, like. talking and talking to someone and so you know it became a uh, very you know scary and and difficult situation because he was uh, really out of it. Now some of your uh, audience might say you know like uh, oh that's so cool you know he could see uh, the Virotes and the spirits and so you know why were you worried you know you should have joined him or something but uh, at the time then I couldn't see them in anything like that and it was uh, very alarming. So, uh, so, we just kept going. So, what was supposed to be, uh, you know, like a four day walk, you know, was turning into, you know, a six day walk. And so our progress became slower and slower. And uh, I was also exhausted. I had uh, my amazing jungle boots that I thought were so amazing, uh, led to bloody blisters on my feet. And so, uh, so like, you know, I was like, I'd like, you know I took my boots off at night it was so bloody and like you know I was like trying to dry my feet off and you know use a you know, duct tape to tape them up and you know kind of get try kind to of get ready to go again and it was just uh, yeah so it became a kind of a emergency so the guide said look you know we can we'll just uh, you know leave uh, you know my friend there with uh, with the one guide and we'll go ahead and then uh, we'll get to the Galvez River and we'll uh, we'll get the help from uh, a group of, uh, of indigenous people called the Matses. So I said, you know, we didn't, that was our only option, so let's do it. So, so I went along and, uh, you know, kind of, I banged on the buttress of a, a tree, a jungle drum. And then, uh, and not that long later, a uh, canoe appeared with uh, a group of, uh, Matses. And I was really uh, relieved just to, you know, feel like, uh, you know, like the, the rescue team had arrived and, uh, you know, they they seemed uh, you know kind of, have uh, died to explain to them the situation, and they were just like, "All right, well, that's cool. We'll we'll go get the guy." I was like, "Okay, that's pretty amazing," you know. And so, so I went to their uh, the village, and uh, they went and got my friend. And to this day, I still don't really understand how they got him back because you know you're walking over small branches, and you're really talking about you know a couple of guys that it might be like five, four, five, five. Maybe 135, and uh, carrying a 63, like 235 kind of thing, guy. So, uh, so I, you know, they, but somehow they did it, and so we got to the village, and then by, uh, you know, the middle of the night, you know, he arrived in the village. We got set up, and uh, there we were, unexpectedly uh, experiencing uh, like a basic rescue and uh, the generosity of uh, this uh, community. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, in the community, it was a very, uh, very beautiful place, you know, kind of uh, on the Galvez River, on a bluff over the river, you know, with a nice uh, breeze, you know, not a lot of bugs, everything uh, seemed great. And uh, so that was, uh, you know, kind of the unexpected uh, first encounter. And just the, like the village itself, you know, was also just, uh, you know, a lot of some things that were, you know, seemed very unusual, which, know, we'll get back to. So for one thing, you know, this, they had this empty house, kind of, a, you know, a hut. But it was very uh, well made and big and uh, made with no uh, no, uh, nails or anything. It was a traditional house just made with an axe and uh, machete. So using vines to tie everything together. But it was very, uh, very well made and uh, just super comfortable. All kinds of fruit trees in the back. Uh pepper bush in the front and just really set up so kind of said like well whose house is this and so they said well oh, this is uh, there was a gringo that came here he learned our language and then he started running around in the woods naked hunting animals i was like well, okay sure like uh, i don't believe any of that but if that's uh, what you're telling me then <laughs> that's cool and so, uh, you know, and then, you know, like uh, some other things that were just kind of, at the time, incredibly shocking, you know, like, so this, uh, like, an old uh, woman is there, and, uh, you know, it was very uh, helpful and friendly, and they said, well, she's a uh, captive. So, what do you mean, she's like, a what, what does that mean? Like, oh, she was captured when she was a girl, and then uh, brought here, and, to, you know, at the time, you obviously, you know, I'd heard about these stories, but just to be sitting there next to someone who was a uh, captive... But everything was, you know, totally relaxed and she was very friendly, happy, and had her whole Matsya's family. But that was another thing that was uh, really kind of struck me, like, what is going on here? And then kind of walking around the village, they had a, a basketball court. So, you know, but uh, so I was kind of asking, OK, what's the deal here? Like, uh, you know, so there was no uh, economic activity at that time, really. So everyone, you know, everyone was a subsistence life. They, they hunted and farmed and fished and uh, made most of the things they had and traded for clothes, boots and metal tools, basically. And uh, but there are no police, uh, no presence of any government. And yet they had a basketball court. So I said, you know, do do Matsis play uh, uh, basketball? They said, no, no, I don't even think they know what it is. But, uh, so why is there a bat, you know, so it's just these, like the typical of the jungle, you know, these kind of uh, seemingly uh, very perplexing and strange uh, things. And uh, the whole, you know, situation just, you know, seeing, uh, you know, electric eels and giant otters and pink dolphins, it's just really a, a magical place. And also the hospitality of the people and it really kind of struck me like imagine you know like in uh, in uh, bronxville where i'm from my hometown let's say there were some like uh, bumbling uh, fools that were in trouble no no money no uh nothing to offer no money what would and said hey i know we're in trouble we need help Like, what you know would people really uh you know invite them give them a place to stay feed them and uh, transport them to, to wherever they needed to go. You know, so that, that kind of a kindness really was really uh, shocking. Because uh, remember, we, we didn't have any plan to uh, like uh, encounter anyone or do anything other than be in the forest. So we didn't have uh, you know uh, money with us. I you know? just had like a, just a little bit of money. So they said, "Look, you know, just uh, you, you know, we'll, we'll take you to the uh, you know the, the military base about you know ten hours down the river and uh you know then you can uh you know then uh you know for the cost of the uh, gas and stuff you can just uh, you know pay us later kind of thing so that was uh that was pretty uh pretty amazing and so so uh you know i was really uh, moved by that experience and uh and uh and then from uh like my idea of the wilderness was then also uh, shattered and I realized that this uh, kind of uh, the wilderness or the world without people, you know, isn't, doesn't exist. And so anywhere that's habitable, you know, in the world there have been for, you know, like 100,000 years or something or more. And so, you know, but, uh, but uh, this area is so wild because, you know, the the Matses and the people protect it and they live there. And so they, you know, so that... So that was a big, uh, kind of a big uh, shift in my understanding of uh, things, and starting from uh, you know a urban suburban place, and then seeing uh, an ancestral territory for the first
0: time. I remember one time you were because uh, we, we we had a chance to to go and and spend some time with the Modses together. It was one of the projects you were working on, and. Uh, you know, most people, as you said, when when they think of the Amazon, they they think of mosquitoes and bugs and always getting bitten. And as you were saying, it, it was like one of the communities was perched on this very idyllic kind of cliff above the water and there was no mosquitoes. And you're telling me this story where you, you asked them, you're like, uh, how are there no mosquitoes here? <laughs> and their answer was, well, we chose a spot where there was no mosquitoes. <laughs> exactly like that uh, that
1: brilliant uh, jungle uh, you know logic and yeah. of course you know like like why would you go and uh, you know build something or stay somewhere where it's miserable with uh, mosquitoes that just doesn't make,
0: uh, make sense yeah yeah it's a very simple grounded logic <laughs> um so so you were, you're living in the U S at this point, you, you come down, you, you have this really kind of moving experience. It, it begins to open you to, to different ways of, of, of seeing things. Was there, was there a plan to, to move to the Amazon? And because I, I know you, you have a number of different projects. You, you, you work with uh, various indigenous communities with kind of agroforestry, permaculture, promoting a, a kind of a, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but but uh, certain crops that can be profitable that, that benefit those groups and also the people who consume those. Was there was that an idea that you had, had or, or that when you when you move when you had that experience in the Amazon, that was something that, that kind of was created out of that experience? Yes, but I
1: mean, I was uh, living in Santa Cruz, California, so I just went home and you know got back to my uh, life in Santa Cruz. So I had no at that time. I had no idea. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you had asked me then, I would say, yeah, I mean, I'd like to help you know, do something. I love the, uh, the Amazon, but, you know, what, what could I do? You know, I'm just a regular guy here in uh, California. So at that point, no. But then, so uh, I wanted to, you know, because we had, the, you know, the, had the issues with my feet and, uh, you know, that trip was, uh, you know, a success in some sense, but it wasn't exactly what I wanted. So a couple of years later, I went back by myself, and then uh, did uh, a similar trip, uh, you know, into into the but same area, know. and uh, also you know uh, met uh, some of the, the matés again during that uh, second trip, and that's when uh, you know I really started to to see that uh, all the potential, and uh, you know began to really have a desire to to actually uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, start start some
0: of these uh, projects, and so, so uh, go ahead. Yeah can you can you describe those those projects that you're involved in? Sure, sure. So, uh, so with with regards to the the then uh,
1: so what happened is uh, uh, there was uh, there's a uh, uh, my friend and your you know, your friend uh, Chris Herndon, who's. Uh, you know, a medical doctor but when he was in uh medical school and afterwards he studied uh traditional systems of medicine and uh kind of in a comparative sense to uh you know allopathic medicine and you know really kind of realized that you know it's a, it's a different system of medicine you know it's not uh you know uh you know, like that is not a, a value association. Because they have a, a different system of medicine with strengths and weaknesses. Allopathic medicine is a system with strengths and weaknesses. So I went to see a, a talk. So at this time, I was already, uh, you know, kind of uh, spending a lot of time in Peru, and uh, and uh, so I, I went to see his talk, and then, uh, you know, I was really excited about you know seeing the potential of uh, collaborating with him. So after the talk, you know, I kind of just kind of pushed everyone out of the way and went up and introduced myself and said that, uh, hey, you know, like uh, there's uh, there's an opportunity for this type of uh, you know, a work of uh, traditional knowledge and uh, medicinal systems. And, and there's great opportunities with the Mates. So uh, so he came down and then, uh, you know, we went to visit the Mates and then uh, kind of just to get an idea and, you know, we you know, kind of what's going on. And then, uh, and then during that trip, we met uh, David Fleck by chance. And it turns out that the the guy who was uh, collect, you know catching animals and running around naked in the forest and learned the Matses language that was real. And that's now you know my good friend and uh, colleague uh, uh, Dave Fleck, who's a, a zoologist and uh, linguist, and who uh, now uh, works with us. And so, so we met him, and. Uh, and uh, you know, started to understand uh, what the Mate's, uh you know situation was, and kind of what how that would fit into what our capabilities were, and so we decided, hey, you know, uh, uh, let's uh, let's try to do something. So let's uh, let's we'll start a uh, nonprofit, and uh, you know, we'll we'll start these projects. So so when you came along with us, that was the uh, medicinal encyclopedia. So. So one of our, our first uh, kind of big project was to uh, help the Matzés to guard their and preserve their traditional medicinal knowledge. So the mates, uh use, you know, some probably around 2,000 different plants and uh, they have their own system of medicine. And so uh, due to the influence of missionaries and, uh, you know, and doctors, you know, discouraging that, that uh, system of medicine was in a steep decline, and really lived only in the within the knowledge of a small group of elders. So, like uh, most matés, would know uh, you know some plants and you know have some idea about plants, but it wasn't that every matés was a uh, plant uh, master, and so that was a small group, and they were aging, and one of the uh, the greatest uh, uh, had uh, passed recently. Uh, uh taking with them you know so much uh, knowledge so in order to preserve that information we decided to create uh encyclopedia of uh, Mates, uh plant knowledge so let me let me just say that like in uh like our work with uh, matzai's so uh you know we the the i think what makes the organization uh special is that we work with them so you know we like so people say how do you help uh how do you help someone or how do you work with someone so the you know the answer is very simple you talk to them and uh you know and, and say hey can we work together sure what do you want to do okay you know and very you know a dialogue to develop you know a, a project so, so that was one of the uh you know i think that's really important and you know like our our communication and dialogue and uh you know our, like a real collaboration with the Matze. so so we can't do everything that they you know would like us to do you know you know, but to so find that overlap of what we can do and what they uh, really think is important. And so this uh, encyclopedia uh, turned into two volumes, so over a thousand pages, and, uh, you know, maybe 800 different uh, medicines. And so uh, it's uh, really the largest uh, repository of indigenous medicine uh, ever collected, and uh, so it was uh, it's just a, a great achievement for the Matses to, to do that. And uh, the, the, it's a bound a book. I think you, you might have seen it. I don't know if you've ever seen a copy, but so it's not available to anyone. So people often say, well, I want to uh, you know, see the encyclopedia, but the Matses have the encyclopedia. It was never published and it's, uh, it's for them. So, so we do not distribute it to anyone uh, and it's only in their language. On the back of the encyclopedia is printed, uh, "Don't share this with non-Indians because they'll steal it." In in so
0: I mean, inevitably, some of this so is, uh, is going to get political a bit. To, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, we got a little bit of a delay, um, but. Uh, you know something I, I find really fascinating, and and that was that was one of the the things I, I was I was so impressed when I when I went there with you was was that very idea of creating a, a medicine encyclopedia for the Mottes in Mottes, and and also this idea, very much like you said of of if you want to help someone asking them what they need, I mean, first asking them if they want help and then, and then how can one help? And it seems like a very different mentality. I mean, so many NGOs that I'm familiar with, they come in with very, specific ideas of how things should be without necessarily understanding all of the nuances of of, of culture and people and thoughts. And this is how things should be. This is what's going to make you better. This is what we want you to do. And I see a lot of disillusionment when those people come in. Uh, It seems like, you know, predominantly Europeans to some degree, maybe North Americans, where there's this disillusion where they often realize like the people actually don't necessarily want what I think is best for them. So what was what was that? I mean, it seems like such a simple thing, but why do you think there's such a disconnect in, in that ideology in which you're working with? versus the kind of what I, I've i seen as being this more predominant ideology of we're going to help you by telling you exactly what you need to do.
1: Yeah so I mean from my vantage of I mean, that's why you know I think it's good to start with that story because I the Matze saved me you know I'm bumbling around lost in the jungle and they saved me so they helped me in the way that I wanted to be helped right I didn't want to uh like uh, join their tribe you know i've learned uh you know you know what i mean so so they helped me within the framework of what I saw as being helped and so uh so that I mean, that was one thing and then also with uh you know dave Fleck you know he he you know lived with the Matsis. he lives with them uh you know uh, married to Matsis children so he's you know really uh you know uh, a huge uh, advocate for the Matsis. and then with, uh, with Chris Herndon you know he had worked in these medicinal systems and had experience in Colombia and uh, Suriname, Brazil and so uh, the team itself you know, had a very different uh, idea about uh, you know really uh, you know, just see, you know working with people and just like he worked with anyone else you know you work with uh, a contractor, you work with another company. I mean, there's a way, there are correct ways to work with people, it doesn't matter if it's, uh, you know, know, a bummer or an indigenous group, you know, you you just work with people in that correct way, that's mutually agreeable. And so, there's, uh, you know, one of the the real issues, I mean, is that, that, you know, the top-down funding model. So, a lot of NGOs are limited. So, let's say, you know, you you, uh, have to receive uh, institutional grants. And then each uh, granting organization has a very specific list of things that they fund. So, you know, you apply for a grant. Well, you know, like uh, we only uh, fund programs for girls. Okay, that's great. You know, that's a huge problem and a huge issue of, uh, you, know, of uh, you know, lifting up uh, girls and you know, girls education. That's great. But then for the on-the-ground NGO, then, you know, you're going to go to the village and say, hey, kids, come on over here. Um Boys, you know, hey, get lost. Okay, you get out of here. All right. And uh, but the girls, we have this program for you. You know, so that that kind of a thing where you know their top-down concept and what their uh, objectives, like of their like board of directors or the people who finance them, you know, say I'm passionate about uh, you know species, single species conservation, for example. And so, like, does that species live by itself? I mean, it just like, is like a planet of that species or something? I mean, no, it's part of an ecosystem. It's part of, right? So, so you have these kind of very, uh, you know, compartmentalized and uh, reductionist, basically, uh, concepts that are, you know, applied uh, from the top down. And that's why those projects, uh, you know, basically, I mean, it's almost like, uh, like a thermodynamic thing. Like they are guaranteed to fail like there is no like energetic possibility for them to succeed in some way. So that, that's one of the real problems. And then there are some groups. So they say, Hey, look, I mean, this guy, uh, Dr. Fleck is the you know, leading expert in uh, unknown language group, live with these people for uh, you know, so many years. Here's the uh, one of their uh, leaders of their group. Let's talk to them and uh, see what they have to say. And then from that, then see where that overlap is to work together so that's uh so that's kind of what we uh tried to uh, try to accomplish and then you know like for dealing with this kind of top-down stuff then we're also able to you know like uh, piece things together so in other words like someone only wants to work with girls then you find another group that only wants to work with boys and then you you put it together and then you can have a you know a a project that uh you know that kind of makes sense on the and on the ground level.
0: Something you mentioned, which is really interesting, and it's always something that's fascinated me is, on the one hand, there seems to be increasingly, I think, thankfully, a real recognition of, of Indigenous customs, wisdom, values, how they are, in a way, guardians of the forest. And yet, it seems like for so long, there's been this mentality, and it's still very prevalent, kind of this idea that people are bad. And the way to preserve nature is to just purge it of all of the people and then nature will just flourish. And something you mentioned, which I think is really important, is this idea that, that when you saw the Matses, you, you saw that there was a very symbiotic relationship of these people living in the lands. And actually, as you said, they, they viewed themselves as, as the custodians, the guardians, and, and they were caring for the land. And, and there was actually... a a symbiotic benefit of, of that relation between man and nature. Is that something you've seen as well? And and, and why do you think there is that that kind of, it seems like still a very prevalent view of, of like people bad, we have to get rid of all the people for nature to be able to flourish. Okay, so uh, I guess uh, I would answer that by, let's look at the, uh,
1: because like the, the people bad thing is true. I mean, in some cases, right? So let's look at this. So you have, uh, let's say you have uh, uh, indigenous ancestral territory here in the Amazon, okay? And then you have the dominant uh, consumer society. So how does the uh, dominant consumer society see the forest, see this uh, same space? Well, what do you got? Some minerals there. You got uh, some petroleum, got maybe some gold, you know? Uh, some minerals under the ground we can uh, you know uh, extract that what's in the river oh got fish those are really delicious fish we can send them to a gourmet restaurant in uh, in Tokyo we have little tiny fish too and those are really pretty let's scoop those up and we can sell them in the aquarium trade what's that a monkey oh it's a rare monkey we'll send it to a zoo oh the common monkeys oh we'll sell those as pets what? oh look at that bug let's uh there's a beetle let's uh pin that on a board look at the butterfly yeah pin that on a board got a parrot good sell it let's capture it sell it uh what else you got a trees look at all these trees boy now we can make uh you know toilet paper and uh do you know expensive furniture from these uh from all these uh trees so you know like that kind of uh consumer Uh, Culture of just, uh, you know, extractivist mentality. So everything, you know, is just uh, like a fungible uh, asset that can just be uh, mowed down and turned into money. And then even the the Mates, uh, or even like indigenous peoples, uh, their very society itself. So you have uh, like, I would say an academic. So they come like your typical, you know, anthropologist, linguist, or biologist, or, you know, they go, they're welcomed into the community. They stay there for a year. They turn that experience into an entire career for themselves. They take it back to a university. The university, uh, you know, has classes and is a giant uh, commercial enterprise in some sense. And so, what's what's given back to the uh, indigenous people? Well, you know, uh, academic grants do not include uh, any provisions for the benefit of indigenous peoples or the communities they live in. It's just about the researcher. So, like, even their culture itself is being extracted and then look at, like, their traditional systems of medicine. So, you know, like uh, some people say, you know, a quarter or more of all uh, pharmaceutical drugs are based on, uh, you know, plant-based medicines. So did was there any uh, intellectual property rights? What happened with those medicines? No, they were just, you know, someone observed, you know, like uh, people hunting. They said, oh, look at that. That stops blood clotting. We'll, we'll, we'll collect that. We'll take it back to our lab. We'll patent it. Will make uh, you know turned into a profit without any inclusion of the indigenous people, even their spiritual systems, right? So you say, "Oh, look at this! Here's this uh, cool uh, spiritual system. I'm going to open a, an exclusive uh, indigenous, uh, you know, a spiritual center with uh, a deluxe uh, campus in uh, Tokyo, Milan, uh, Costa Rica, and Honolulu, or something, right? And so, what what is given back to to the community? So so that the individual person. Takes that uh, that uh, sacred knowledge and converts it into a uh, business for themselves. So you can see from like uh, you know why you know like you know like the concept of the Pishtako, right like the uh, the the white vampire that uh, you know dissolves the, the body fat of the indigenous people and uses it to power all their machines. So you know, so from their vantage point, they have a great, uh, you know, history of, you know, being mistreated. And, you know, so their suspicions of the outside world, and their observations of it are, are extremely justified, because of
0: this, uh, you know, a rampant uh, consumer culture. So what do you what do you think is, is that balance then of I mean, obviously we we live in a consumeristic world. that's that's something that that I would imagine isn't going away anytime soon. and And yet, you have spent a lot of time, for example, with the Matses, I know with other groups as well. Um, what are what would you say are some of the things you've learned that and 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 is there a way that there can be a balance in that way? One of the things when when I went with you to the mats that I found very interesting was this this idea of, for example, finding products that they're not using, to be able to empower them to profit off of those, which I found very fascinating, because it's not then something that that they're taking away from themselves in order to gain. It's something that they weren't using in the first place, and 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 I think the one of the ones I remember was copaiba, which is a, a resin from a tree. And, and also very interestingly, because often the, the people extracting that will cut down the tree because it's much easier because then you can just get all the oil at once, but doing it in a more sustainable fashion where you tap it, you, you take a little bit of the oil and if they're not using it anyway, then it is kind of this untouched resource. And if it can be done sustainably, then it, at least for me at that time, it seemed like a, that seems like a really good solution to kind of finding this balance between consumerism, empowering them with money, because money is something we all need. uh, And yet not, not extracting something that's, that's taking away from how they're, they're living their lives. Yeah. So uh, you touched on, like, uh, this is a word I use. So I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, uh,
1: criticizing you, but the word uh, I use as well, sustainability. So like uh, that, that has some, there's some, it's, somewhat problematic, you know, because it's like the Yogi Berra thing, right? Like uh, predictions are tough, especially when they deal with the future, right? So you have this, uh, so sustainability means that it it can, it's an activity that can continue for some indefinite amount of time. So basically it's a predictive model of the future. So, So when you say something sustainable, then how do you know? Like what's your, where's your model? So what what variables are you looking at for predicting this future uh, condition? So uh, the word gets thrown around a lot. And so within like the, the permaculture and agroecology movement, from uh, like a practical and scientific basis, we, uh, you know, we want to look at indigenous cultures because... That is sustainable. How do you know? Well, they've been in the same place for ten thousand years. And they're living, you know, in a, uh, the same way, using these farming techniques, using these this uh, interaction, and then there's a kind of a stable equilibrium or some type of a basin. So within the, those sets of conditions, then that can continue, uh, you know, for long periods of time, and and we know that as a fact through the, the historical record. So, so within like permaculture and agroecology, we want to look at those, uh, you know, truly sustainable, uh, you know, practices, and then see uh, how, uh, you know, that can be modeled, uh, you know, to, you know, basically uh, meet the needs for food, you know, fibers, shelter, medicine, and energy for for people. And so within this permaculture movement, though, like I hope everyone reads uh, David Holmgren's book, uh, Permaculture Pathways Beyond Sustainability. It's a brilliant book and uh, a very important book by uh, by a great uh, person who's really doing a lot to for humanity. So, uh, but the basic premise is, so so uh, there has to be an energy descent. So in other words, like if, if you ask me the question, say, hey, Bill, uh, you know, uh, how can we survive on the planet and, you know, support uh, parasitic uh, billionaires and their lavish lifestyles? Hmm. Like I don't know. Like I don't. That's, I don't even like that question. It's not a good question, right? But, but from, from like Holmgren's work, and he's saying is that the the ancient sunlight, you know, or the uh, you know petroleum resources, you know, uh, oil, natural gas, and uh, coal, you know, should be seen as a gift because we're able to capture ancient sunlight right, and turn that into energy now. So basically, you're kind of uh, look at it as like kind of like dip, dipping into your savings account. And so, uh, so and take that, those conditions to kind of catalyze and set up a uh, society and uh, you know, energy profile that does not deplete the non-renewable resources and switches from non-renewable to renewable resources. And then, and then on a regional scale, then uh, you're know, looking at the energy and the extractive level so that no region is depleted. So in other words, so not the one area isn't depleting another so that, and then you'll know, you know, have products and an exchange of, of products that do not uh, uh, involve you know, uh, resource depletion that would basically crash the system.
0: And and how, how would he or how would you define a, a renewable resource? Well, that's uh, so in other
1: words, like that's usually like uh, like so like an example would be timber uh, or like uh, like the flowing of water. So, you know, it's not, uh, you know, the timber grows back, the water continues to flow. And so then like the, the key uh, non-renewable resources are things like uh, like uh, phosphorus and, and mineral resources and metals or things like that that are mined. And then because, you know, so those uh, from a, from Holmgren's and the permaculture's perspective, that's where you really have to focus on minimizing and really using those resources incredibly wisely. And so like the, we can talk a little bit about climate, so-called climate change, and, uh, and uh, but you know, like when you see, like read Holmgren's book and understand this energy descent, So he's calling for people to, you know, have their needs met in terms of, you know, food, shelter, fiber, uh, medicines, uh, peace, security, you know, everything that people need to thrive, but having those met without uh, any, you know, taking, you know, violence and taking things from other people or in a, a way that crashes the system. And so, so the real uh, one of the I think one of the really important things is to understand, you know, on on our planet that you know, like uh, there's a great paper that was done. I'm sorry, I don't remember the authors' names, but kind of looking at the uh, the Earth as a battery. So, so all the heat of the Earth is eventually destined for the the outer space, right? The void of space will, with 100% certainty, take every bit of heat generated on the planet earth right that's just the, the thermodynamic reality of the universe so when we look at the earth as a battery so the space is an anode the earth is a cathode so the the light from the sun that energy is chemically stored in uh, biomass and so like uh, hydrocarbons and you know our uh, ancient sunlight and they're you know those accumulations and then all the living biomass of the earth is the, uh, kind of, could be seen as the the storage of a battery, okay? So as that's destroyed, so biomass is destroyed, it's lost, that's kind of the the charge on the battery. And then uh, as that, uh, the system, you know, the systems, the ecosystems of the earth, you know, the terrestrial and and, uh, the ocean are degraded, then that's kind of affecting the ability of the battery to charge. So, according to you know uh, paper, you know we kind of we we're, we're, you know the battery is down like right now close to 60%. So if we get to some uh, lower point, then the Earth could revert back to the state it was in prior to life on you know to life, and basically just being a, you know barren, uh, you know, Mars-like uh, landscape. So one of the really important things is understanding the importance of biomass and uh, and looking at the earth as a, as a system and and charging so we need we need more biomass so we have to accumulate biomass and then uh, and part of that process is uh, repairing ecosystems such that they can they are able to accumulate biomass so uh, so I think that's really one of the the key things. So, and that that's kind of, uh, you know, I people talk about permaculture, you know, like uh, there's so much great stuff in permaculture, you know, plant your tomatoes next to this and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, very practical, you know, home design and gardening tips. But within the, the permaculture, uh, you know, system there, there's also a big picture, which is very important. I think that sometimes, you know, people get so excited about you know their uh, their farms and and uh, you know their homesteads and things like that. That you know they kind of uh, don't address those larger issues.
0: And and what would you what would you say that the larger issue that the permaculture is pointing towards that that accumulation of biomass? Yes, I mean
1: so so permaculture is
0: uh, you know kind of like uh, could be seen as a systems theory. So
1: so as a holistic system. So so in other words, like uh, like let's say we wanted to like uh use a reductionist model so in other words a system is something uh where by studying one of the components you cannot understand the behavior of the system itself right so so like that's a, that's the problem but let's say like you, you studied economics right so let's say you just study economics but you don't understand ecology you can never predict the behavior because it's a linked system. So if you just look at ecology, if you just look at economics, you just look at one part of a system, you will never be able to understand the behavior of the whole system. So permaculture is, uh, you know, the, the based on indigenous, uh, you know, uh, practices. So things that are proven to be uh, durable, and then culture. So acknowledging that you know, without a uh, peaceful and stable culture, that it doesn't really none of this other stuff really matters. So it's a it, it's a systems approach to a creating a you know abundant and uh, you know beautiful uh, world for everyone
0: yeah it seems very <clears throat> very kind of relevant to to the whole pandemic we're in as well. Uh, responses of, of just looking at one field and, and again, not necessarily looking at, at, at the, the broader picture, which is also very similar to medicine in that way, too. It seems like there's been a real movement away from uh, a more, as you said, holistic medicine or, or even like a general practitioner into these more and more specialized things. But then it becomes very difficult to see the, the picture at large. Um I guess while we're still talking about the Amazon, what are what are what are some of the the main problems you see, um, and then what are potential solutions for that? Because I, I think a lot of people, and and it, it, it's one of the things that I find very fascinating about you is we also live in this climate where you know seemingly everyone has an opinion on something. We 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 listen to the news. We we read a meme on Facebook, and we think we have a very good idea. Of the problems of the world and also the solutions, but you know you're someone you, you you've lived now for for I guess a couple decades now in the Amazon. You're you're very involved in in on the ground approaches, working with indigenous communities, running businesses. What do you see are the the real problems facing the Amazon, and and what are potential ways of 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 moving through those those issues? Okay, so uh,
1: I mean, one of the if if like uh, all my uh, you know uh, the people here they would they would you know from the communities they would say well, the problem is poverty. They they would I'd have to say that uh, from from a community standpoint, the the number one uh, issue is poverty, uh, lack of uh, educational opportunities, and uh, lack of access to healthcare. So that would be uh, their uh, perspective, and so. Like here in Peru, uh, you know, the, the leading uh, driver of deforestation is actually, uh, you know, small farmers, so people, you know, doing a slash and burn, you know, agriculture and always, you know, having to do uh, uh, more, uh, you know, cutting. And uh, so that's that's one of the uh, problems. So, uh, but this is where, like, uh, so I think we talked a little bit about Acate uh, and then my other... Uh, you know, project is a company called ecocola and so uh, Ecola is a uh, superfood cosmetic ingredient and a nutraceutical uh, you know uh, supplier and so uh, and this is where the uh, kind of the economy comes in because like let's say like so I, there are a lot of uh, like environmental activists and like you start uh, talking about economy and then they'll say consumer choice is just uh, garbage okay choose uh, coke or Pepsi who cares, right? It's just uh, you know, and and always by consuming more. How are you gonna How are you gonna solve the problem of consumption by consuming? And so, uh, so those are, are valid points. So, uh, so my, uh, you know, the idea is then you know, if you people have choices because, uh, like money is let's say currency. Let's just call it. Let's just look at it as energy. So when you buy everything you buy, you're energizing that that, uh, you know, product and everything associated with it. So so each purchasing decision you make, you know, energizes whatever is behind that. So, and, uh, you know, given the limited, you know, kind of the Coke Pepsi uh, dynamic, then, you know, there have to be alternatives because without alternatives, then consumer choice does absolutely nothing, obviously. So what if you, instead of that, what if you had, uh, you know, products that are, you know, uh, done in a, uh, even a regenerative way. So part of the proceeds are used to restore degraded areas. Uh, people are paid well, and then the product itself has great uh, benefit for the, the people using it. And so uh, fits into their nut- nutrition, in our case, in the nutritional and health needs. So that was the, uh, the, the idea behind doing that, to, to give people, the, you know, something so that the consumer choice can function. And I still see uh, consumer choice as really being a, uh, you know, a, a very, you know, one of the most powerful tools available. Because then, you know, in mass, then, then you know, it can it can really shift uh, and solve so many problems. And so uh, so when, you know, being in the jungle, you know, you try so many amazing things and, you know, different uh, foods and different stuff. So I said, wow, you know, this is so, so uh so amazing and uh, all these uh, these products how you know and then I realized that you know these product you know these native plants that have uh, you know uh, fruits and uh, seeds that uh, you know have uh, you know nutrients that are really lacking and uh, in you know the typical Western diet they can be grown uh, you know in uh, communities and then uh, can also contribute to a regenerative, uh, you know, uh, production system instead of an extractive, uh, extractive uh, uh, production system. And so, like uh, one of our first uh, things we started working with was uh which is uh, a vine which is a very high in omega-3 fatty acids. So, you know, like omega-3 fatty acids are essential, meaning that your body uh, cannot produce, you know, uh, synthesize them. Uh, know naturally have to be obtained through diet and they uh, basically uh, you know uh, have uh, a part in so many metabolic pathways in your body that you know it's it's really important and then uh, without that and there are lots of uh, health problems you get into imbalance a lot of uh, you know like a junk food has like omega-6 and so that's very common but the omega-3s are not and so, so that's something. Wow, look at such uh You know, so much uh, omega-3, and has uh, lots of uh, good, uh, you know, high-quality protein, fiber, and minerals. And then you know, it's a native find to the Amazon. So that was one of the uh, first, uh, uh, you know, uh, products that we started working with. And uh, and and that's kind of uh, the model. So and then in order to help the communities. Then you know you have to look really at the value chain. So let's say you just have a, a model where you're just taking raw materials from a community, right? So then most of the value goes to uh, you know the producer, and the, you know the transformation is where you know the uh, the value is added. And so uh, our uh, philosophy is to as much as possible to move that transformation and the value addition. Uh, closer and within, or cl- as close as possible to the community itself, and that's how you know. So that uh, so that then you know, within then they they can have the lives they want, and so they whatever they want to do, they can you know get medical care, go to you know go to school, and have their needs uh, met, but in a way that uh, doesn't involve uh, you know uh, bushmeat meat hunting, uh, you know uh, timber cutting, and uh, all that kind of stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. From from your time with the Matses, what a kind of a similar question. What do you what do you see are some of the issues they're facing? Um, and and then also what are some of the things you you've learned from them? Um you know, you mentioned like your, your whole story kind of started with them and just beginning to recognize these little details. Like you, you mentioned the leather boots and you know that's probably something most people would think, like, oh yeah, these are great boots they're they're gonna work well and And yet people would look at the Matce walking barefoot and like, "Oh well, that's kind of crazy, but there's a reason they're doing that is because you know <laughs> if you can build up the sole of your foot at least it's it's far more beneficial in many ways. um so you know there's there's very practical knowledge like that but then also within like the, the organization of their societies or there things you've learned, the, the way they, they structure. I, I mean, I was even very fascinated <clears throat> when, when they were having some of the meetings, just the way in which they expressed themselves was, was very different. Uh, I mean, very forthright, very uh, I mean, I, I could almost see like this warrior tradition uh, and it was a bit shocking at first, but then everyone was smiles. And, but so it's, it's a group of people that have been relatively isolated. And so they've, I think like anything in an environment, they develop very particular ways of doing things, of seeing the world that are obviously very beneficial to them. Um, but for yourself, are, are there things that, that you've seen that you've really understood are maybe not just beneficial for them, but, but ways that they've, they've developed learning or seeing the world that are also very beneficial for the world at large? Sure. I mean I think one of
1: the most uh, really shocking things is in a Matis community like there there are no police and traditionally no one is in charge like so there's no uh, headman or president or king so you know, they, they, so who's in charge here everyone no one however you want to uh, look at it and so you have a community with uh, you know and uh, everyone has a shotgun and you uh, you know, they, they've been uh, in peace and, you know, almost I've uh, never really heard of any uh, other than like the family disputes, like uh, no, no uh, violence. So that was really the amazing thing to see that, you know, that kind of that uh, Mates, uh, idea of uh, kind of, you know, like uh, helping each other. So if you, you know, we can work together and if you ask me for help, I'll, I'll help you if I if I can. But I, I'm you know, but you can't compel me to do anything. And no one can compel me to do anything. But, you know, obviously, if I don't help you, uh, then, you know, when I need help, you probably would be hesitant to help me as well. So, uh, you know, so that type of, uh, the, you know, just a society that where, you know, like uh, without any kind of like a hierarchical or, you know, uh, you know,
0: control of, uh, of people. Mm mm-hmm. I mean, this is something we, we've talked about a lot just in, in kind of our, our own conversations. But I mean, that, that very much reminds me of, of, of this philosophy of libertarianism, which is really based on the non-aggression principle that, you know, we're essentially we're all free. We're, we're born free. Um, we're, we're, we have inal- inalienable rights that were given to us, not, not by man, not by government, but by creator, by God. And that essentially, we those are the fundamental, the kind of state that we're born into. And it seems like, I think, for a lot of people, maybe they can picture that on a smaller scale. Um, you know, this idea that there are no police, there there is no hierarchy, there there is no leader, and yet. For most people, that seems like such a foreign concept that that there isn't a government, there isn't someone telling you what to do. There, there's not uh, a group of people who have absolute power and can use coercion to 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 subdue you into doing what kind of the the collective good says you need to do. Uh, why do you think that's such a, a difficult thing for people to grasp that that there is this way of life that's possible? Do you think it's just, it takes a complete leap of faith or or, or just the way we've been brought up is is so ingrained in this more hierarchical structure? What is the origin of power? What is the origin of of rights and liberty? That it's just, it's such a a different way of viewing the world that it's so hard for people to actually take that in and and comprehend that? Yeah, I think part of it is just the ability to cooperate. So for example, like,
1: Like, uh, you know, like uh, my, uh, my wife, was, you know, I was always telling her about, uh, you know, uh, uh, libertarianism and stuff. And so, so we go to visit, uh, you know, like uh, uh, her family in Lima. And so there's a collective, uh, you know, like a common area. Uh, and they had this whole uh, security system with uh, cameras and, uh, and uh, guards. And so they'd actually review the security system. And the people who were littering or not picking up after their dogs. It would then be uh, given these uh, big fines, and so the the common area was uh, was very pleasant. They you know, go out there and and uh, you know just do, do your thing. Very pleasant. So they they stopped the security system. So they no one was monitoring the cameras, and they stopped doing the fines. And we went back there, and there's just uh, you know dog poop everywhere, and uh, you know it's just uh, basically the whole space became uh, unusable. And so, right, so that's the thing. So, like, uh, you know, it's great, you know, like, uh, you know, obviously, you know, at some point, you know, like, uh, people have to be autonomous and that. But there has to be some type of personal responsibility ingrained. And then also everyone has to be practicing. Like, so the Matses are all kin and they, they, you know, they grow up together. And so they're practicing one culture. So they have a common, uh, you know, framework within which they're operating. And, you know, and also a lack of specialization. So, like, uh, you know, like, every, you know, maybe there's uh, someone who's really good at this or someone who's, uh, you know, a, uh, uh, a plant healer. But basically, everyone, you know, has a farm. Everyone, uh, you know, does their thing. And, you know, kind of in the same way. So, when you have uh, these different uh, societies, then it becomes much, uh, much uh, more uh, challenging for people to have personal responsibility. So, like, you know, pick up after your dog. Or you know then and, and then you know you get into that whole thing of the kind of the race to the bottom with cheating well you know like uh, you know I, there's dog poop all over the place anyway so I can't use the park so so you know I'll just let my dog uh, poop as well because uh, you know then uh, why should I just be the only one because it won't have any net impact because uh, you know, there's so much dog poop so that that's really the issue and so so I'm a big uh, fan of uh, libertarian uh, you know that kind of idea of uh, you know uh, being free of uh, being coerced into doing things, but uh, like uh, realistically, you know I think uh, you know without you know people being uh, having like a formation and really understanding personal responsibility and uh, and the consequences of their actions, then uh, the
0: commons cannot be managed. So that that's really the uh, the limitation. And do you think with the Motsis, that's just something that, that's very much ingrained in them from from when they're born is is like, hey, look, like you do have certain responsibilities there. There are things you have to do, uh, you know, if, if you don't go and hunt, as you said, like, why? Why are we going to give you food? Like, wh- you know, you're not special. You <laughs> Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So so
1: they have, uh, you know, it's kind of a uh, and then also the, you know, like the you know, the, the resource uh, usage. So like uh, traditionally, so the, the Matzés would, uh, were semi-nomadic. So they would, uh, you know, like uh, clear an area, you know, uh, uh, and farm there for some years. And then in that area, the animals would be, uh, you know, uh, around and also maybe not that uh, afraid of people. And so they could hunt and uh, live, you know, live in that area for some years. And then go find another spot, and then that area would uh, then just naturally regenerate. So you have uh, you know a system that uh, can you know is a very durable. So now the Matses are you know after the missionaries they live in you know settled uh, little villages, and so now you know they're facing problems with uh, you know with uh, hunting because you know they have to go uh, further and further to uh, to encounter animals, and animals are also very uh, wary. And then also, you know, you have these kind of rings of degraded areas. So the Mats themselves are, are facing this, uh, this problem now as they, uh, you know, uh, kind of adopt, uh, you, know, uh, you know, settled uh, life. And then, you know, the matze, I mean, I think it's really important to point out that, you know, like indigenous people uh, have, uh, you, know, like, you know, get away from this kind of idealized uh, view of like uh, perfect health. So the mates, uh you know, do have a lot of health problems. They suffer from, uh, you know, hepatitis and uh, malaria to name, to name uh, two of them. And then like uh, also like uh, dental uh, issues. So they, you know, like uh, they have like uh, like tooth pullers and like some very uh, rudimentary uh, dental stuff they can do, but that's something that's uh, missing. So, you know, they do have their plant medicines and, uh, you know, that really helps, but you know that there are uh, certainly uh, health issues that they face, and then also uh, engage in commerce
0: mm-hmm. so I mean, uh, this is obviously a very big question, but what do you where do you think that balance can be found? Uh, something that comes to mind is, Uh, Someone was speaking to me the other day about, um, uh, Akate, which is the, the Matses word for the, the the combo or the, the sapo, like the, 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 the frog venom that they use as medicine. And, uh, you know, there there was like a picture of this frog. Kind of, uh, you know, they they tie it up. They kind of sprawl it out on these on these stakes, and they they kind of t- tickle or massage its back leg, and it excretes this venom, which they use for medicine. Um, and, and the person was saying, you know, that seems very cruel, and and I, I could see where they were coming from if if that's all you saw was that photo. But having been there, it was fascinating, like seeing or hearing about people who would actually call these frogs like they would they would do the call and the, the frog would just kind of like wander over there and they'd they'd pick it up and they'd tie it up and from what I saw that frog didn't seem to be suffering I and mean, it seemed super chill super relaxed and then they got the the secretion and then they set it back down and the frog just kind of stood there and eventually it, it kind of wandered off um so like that, that balance between, like, I, I think knowing how to do something and appreciating that, but then also you, you, I've heard you speak of this very, I think, important idea too of, uh I think the word you use was something like biopiracy, you know, coming in and taking that. And you mentioned it in the beginning of the, the podcast as well, taking something, but not giving back that knowledge as well. And this is kind of a convoluted question, but but I guess that balance between, in a broader picture, the Matses, they have a lot to teach, as you were saying, and yet they also face problems. And even like we were talking about, almost like a governing structure, like there are things that that they do very well, but potentially those only work for the Motsis or within a smaller community. So what do you think is that balance between being able to see what they have of value, being able to use that, spreading that to a larger society, and yet still understanding that there are potentially complex things that can only exist within that community and and how do you find that balance and and i again I, I guess just like a quick reference but because it's also the name of your your ngo is Akate. like that just comes to mind like what is that balance between seeing that this is medicine that it's amazing medicine bringing that out in the world but also not so much that it's 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 taking away from the very thing that's making the matzays the matzays yeah, so uh, so with the uh, acate, so
1: that you know is the the Matzis, uh, you know, not only Matsis, but other I uh, know in groups, so there are other tribes that use that, but you know that is their property. So how would anyone in the world, I like would say, you know, you're in Los Angeles, how would you, without them, thought, hey, I got an idea, there's a, a tree frog in the Amazon, I got an idea, let's let's burn our little skin a little bit. And put some of the venom of the tree frog in there. What do you think? Like that would never happen, right? So, so that's their their uh, traditional heritage. That's their you know intellectual property. It's their right. So, the the idea is that then you know like people decide what to do with their own uh, property and how they want to do it. So that's really the key. So, uh, so the, originally there was uh, you know some of the elders and uh, you know thought that it was uh, bad to. Uh, you know, to sell the or you know let the uh, outsiders get the medicine, but now uh, they've agreed that uh, it's uh, it's a good thing uh, to uh, share the medicine, but uh, only from from them and through uh, their their thing. So so that's been a, a nice uh, kind of example where you know they're they're deciding uh, within their group what the, what the price is. And then how uh, how that the, the process will be done, and so that's really the key. I mean, it's their thing. Let them let them decide. And then uh, the mates, uh, I can tell you, are uh, are in disagreement about uh, you know other people uh, selling the sticks. So, but but they are okay. Like uh, so, in other words, that uh, when outsiders buy the sticks and then use it. Uh, you know and then you know do their uh, thing that's okay but if it's not from them or I guess you know from one of the other uh, traditional groups that use it then they would
0: uh, oppose that. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things when when I was there was uh, from what I heard is the Matses viewed themselves almost like a, a big brother to other groups who were kind of further down river, further in the forest who maybe at one point had contact but were choosing to remain uncontacted with with I guess we could say the outside world. Is that something you're familiar with and 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 what do you think uh, what do you think the intention of of these groups is and do you think there there still are uh, people who are kind of further in the jungle who who want to remain without contact to the outside world, or is that something that's, that's disappearing very quickly?
1: I think it's disappearing very quickly, but uh, so w- where we were on the Yakirana River, right? So we were in the upper Yakirana. So uh, I can, uh, so we've been doing a mapping project, so a territorial mapping project for the last five years. So uh, we've helped the with uh, GPS units and also to uh, use the GIS uh, system to create uh, a, a territorial map from their vantage point, which uh, you know is uh, one of the main uh, uh, things from their vantage point is to record all the names of the places, so like the original names and of all the places and really establish uh, their territory. So. Uh, during the, the course of one of these trips, uh, they, uh, they they did encounter uh, some uh, uncontacted people. So uh, the Matses are really key to protecting these people living in uh, voluntary isolation, and so uh, and, and near their territory, which is you know really one of the you know the great uh, wilderness areas and uh, you know uh, left on the planet. It, it, it's one of the you know the, the places uh, with the highest uh, numbers. Of uncontacted people, and so so one of the things that the Matsis do agree on is that you know that you know these people you know have to be protected. So you know because you know they understand that you know they can get diseases, and so you know like first contact with uncontacted group you know usually you know leads to catastrophe. So you know most of the people would die from disease. And then you know, just uh, just an awful situation. So you know, so it's different. You know, like having like uh, missionaries go out, and you know, they're gonna, you know, there's there's some people out uh, in this area that you know don't uh, know about Jesus yet. So we're gonna go uh, tell them. You know, that whole kind of thing is uh, you know is, is real. And uh, you know these uh, zealots, absolutely uh, crazy zealots, will uh, try to uh, you know go out and, and contact these people with disastrous results. And so that's very different from the people themselves, uh, you know, uh, seeking uh, you know uh, contact. So uh, so actually, uh, you know, Acate has a project uh, with that same uh, village. You know that. Uh, where you know they're they're going to be uh, monitoring the area, because what you don't want is uh, unintended, uh, you know, or some kind of conflict. In other words, where the the Matses are out uh, hunting in their ancestral territory, and for some unknown reasons, or uh, then the the people living in voluntary isolation would could have a uh, contact with them, and that could uh, you know sometimes those conflicts can be violent, or you know, lead to misunderstandings, and also in some cases the people. You know, they know about, uh, uh, you know, metal tools, or, you know, they, we don't, you know, right there in contact, so we don't, you know, obviously we can't say, but, they, you know, they might have some uh, knowledge of uh, and of, uh, tools or, you know, be observing. And so they would want um, uh, particularly, like, you know, axes and machetes, and they might, uh, you know, uh, uh, decide to launch a raid to to obtain those things. So we want to be, uh, you know, help the Matzis to be vigilant and to uh, avoid uh, any, uh, you know, uh, you
0: know, uh, uh, incident with those people. I, I saw a friend of mine sent me uh, a few weeks ago. It was it was a group of people in Peru, an indigenous community, and there, there was this big push to, to kind of sign a petition or to fight for their rights to have this indigenous reserve. And, and I think for a lot of people, that sounds like a really good idea, uh, but also coming from the U.S., uh, you know, the, the history of the, the Native Americans in the U.S., that to me, uh, I mean, of course, there there can be a good side to it, but there's also been a tremendous downside of that, too, because that land is then never truly theirs. It, it belongs to the federal government, uh, the, the people never kind of own or, or, or have uh Titles to that land, which can be very disadvantageous too. What do you? Because I know the Matses have a, a territory that's called Matses territory, but I know their situation is a little bit different too. Are, are you familiar with that? Like, what? What exactly are their rights to that land? To, to what degree does the government have control of that? And 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 do you see? that is is like a viable solution for other groups who are also looking for for uh that that same status well let
1: me say first that uh you know i mean i think the, the mates and other indigenous people i am sure that they couldn't care less what i think about their rights to their own territory so i think that's let's establish <laughs> that right away right i mean like like uh, you know what i mean that's like uh the like uh you know that classic uh colonialism right like uh, let me consider uh, how much of your property you may retain, how much must be, you know, uh, right? So, so, I think that's a really key thing. So, the Matzés are unconquered, right? So, they, they were never conquered, so, uh, uh, so they were attacked and they, you know, they lived in, uh, in conflict with the outside world, but they were never conquered. So, so that that's one uh, key thing to to you know there. So, so the Mapes have a communal reserve. So, and that is uh, a, uh, a an area of uh, you know, 500,000 hectares, the largest in Peru, which is titled to the Mapes as a community. And so, within their uh, political structure, uh, controls that area. So they have this uh, zone, and then. Uh, the reality is, you know, the mates are very clear, this is our territory. And so like, uh, and and it doesn't matter who you are, you can't come in our territory without our permission. And so they're very clear about that. So, so within that area, but that uh, there's a, a big uh, misconception and people think that the communal reserve, the, the, the legally titled area, is the equal to their ancestral territory. And so uh, through this uh, mapping process, you know, we have we have, we can very uh, demonstrably show that uh, that is not the case. So, so but uh, in terms of I guess uh, you
0: know
1: like uh, they got a better deal than some, but that doesn't mean it's you know I mean that you know what I mean that doesn't mean that it's uh, perfect. But there was a lot of work that went in to getting them this uh, this titled uh, area, and then uh, and then so kind of what happened unfortunately. Is that there's also uh, Matzés National Reserve, and so that's a, a state, uh, like equivalent of like a state park or something, right? And so it's called the Matzés National Reserve. And uh, and then there's the Matzés Communal Reserve. So part of the Mates, uh the state-owned, you know, uh, Mates, uh, Reserve, uh, Matzés uh, National Park, let's call it, or National Reserve is uh, part of, is in the Matze's ancestral territory and part of it is not. And then there, there are other areas around their you know around the borders of their titled land that are part of their ancestral territory, which they do not have title to. And so uh, the Matses were, were very upset and uh, dismayed that the, that the Peruvian state called this area the Matzes National Reserve. But it's not, uh, which includes part of their ancestral territory, but uh, is not. Uh, they don't have control over that, so that's controlled by the state, and so that that's the thing. So, and then within their communal reserve, then uh, in Peru, so they have uh, control over. In reality, they control it completely. I mean, like within their communal reserve, they they have they completely control it, and so. Uh, but uh, technically. Uh, the mineral rights are not uh, there. So in other words, like the oil extractions, and so some of that's the problem. So there could be, uh, you know, so they, they would not uh, own the mineral rights, which are separate. So in other words, like that, that there was a situation where an oil company had, uh, you know, had, uh, you know, uh, owned the rights, you know, and, and a lot that included some of the Mazi's ancestral territory. And that's since been uh, annulled uh, and, you uh, you know, a lot, but uh, but that that's one of the, 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 the issues, and then also the state controls the commerce, right? So so if the matas want to like sell uh, timber, then they have to work uh, with the Peruvian forest authorities, and then of course they uh, they have to you know pay taxes and follow the Peruvian regulations for any external commerce that they uh, that they have. So they're not an autonomous nation but they do control their, uh, uh, you know, around, you know, a little more than half of their ancestral territory.
0: One of the the really fascinating things was that I saw was um, that their territory is on the very Eastern edge of Peru. And so that borders Brazil. So it seemed like some of the Matses were on the Peruvian side and some were on the Brazilian side. And even it was very strange because some some spoke Spanish, some spoke Portuguese. And, and then even logistically, almost like uh, nightmarishly, like if if a Peruvian Matzés needed something officially, he would have to go to Lima, which is, you know, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of miles to the west. And then just on the other side of the river, you can literally see the guy. If he wants something done, he has to go. 2,000 miles to the east, to Brasilia, to the capital of Brazil, to, to get it. And it just seems like such a crazy thing with this kind of imaginary line that, that that's really in a way divided this this tribe, uh, uh, you know, culturally, geographically. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, like
1: the people still have their relatives. So the, the Matis move freely across the border and visit, and there are no uh, border controls between the Peruvian and Brazilian side. But as you said, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, for the village on the one side, everything's in Portuguese, you know, or like the, uh, you know, the second language is Portuguese and on the Peruvian side, the second language is Spanish. So you do have that, uh, you know, typical, you know, you know, situation where, you know, an ancestral territory is bisected by uh, colonial borders. And so, uh, but the Mates do, you know, they can move back and forth and, you uh, and you know, uh, move freely uh, between their their own areas. But you know, like I mean, like uh, I think it would be difficult. Like if a Peruvian uh, Matze you know wanted to go to Brasilia or something like that, or go to Rio de Janeiro or something, and that would be uh, you know that that's when it, it gets uh, weird.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it very interesting because uh, I was very interested in in tobacco, and and I noticed uh, still some of the old men uh in, in Matses they called it nuna and it, it's this tobacco powder that they make and and they, they mix it with uh, with other things and uh, often they'll, they'll inhale it through the nose or they they'll shoot it into the nose of someone else they'll, they'll also chew it um, but it seemed like only the 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 elder men were working with it and when I when I kind of questioned some of the younger men they they had, at least from my recollection, they they had kind of this negative connotation of tobacco, and it seemed like it was because the missionaries had told them that that according to to Jesus or Christianity, tobacco was bad. Um, what if what have you noticed? Uh, because that was also something that was surprising to me that 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 Christianary and the missionaries, like you had mentioned even with this group that was quite remote, still have, have had a, a, quite a large impact on them. What, is, what has been your experience with, uh, with the Matses and, and how uh, Christianity has had an effect on them? Well, I mean, uh, I think, you know, for the traditional uh,
1: Matses uh, shamans who used uh, tobacco, so those practices uh, are, no longer exist. And uh, but the mate still uh, you know use the, the tobacco, and so some of the young people as well, and so uh, so the uh, the, the Akate, uh, team uh, we tend to uh, you know use a little bit of tobacco. So uh, so when we're, <laughs> we're together, then uh, that's certainly uh, something that uh, that gets done. And then you know like uh, they think it's funny because some cause like, uh, like uh, we, uh, we I you know we, and uh, they like we chew it. So, uh, so you know, like when we're, we we're go in land they have a big wad of uh, of uh, the powdered uh, tobacco, so they think that's uh, that's very funny. In terms of uh, Christianity, so so I guess most of the Matiz would identify now as uh, as uh, being uh, Christian, and so they would they would they see that as uh, a very positive thing, and uh, and so the the Bible was uh, translated into their language. That was, you know, the first you know with this uh, the missionaries. That's what you know the. Uh, S.I.L., that's their thing, is to translate the Bible into every language in the world, even uh, a language like Matzai with only 3,000 or something speakers in the world. So they, they've done that, and so the Matze would identify now as, uh, as Christian, but you know they still practice their culture, and they have their kind of uh, cosmovision as well, kind of uh, blended with, uh, with uh, Christianity,
0: as is so common throughout the world. Are, are you familiar with their CosmoVision at all? Is, is that something you've, you've come across? I'm not an expert on that. I mean, uh, uh, I would, uh, you know, it would be really amazing if you had, like,
1: uh, got one of, like, the OG matzes to come and, like, be on your show with uh, Dave Fleck uh, translating. Hmm. Because, uh, like, you know, there, there are still some matzes who were involved in, uh, you know, in the wars with the Mestizos, right? So, like, uh, like you know, that's like uh, like when we are at that uh, meeting in Allegri, one of the old guys came up and he said, uh, he said, how you doing? I used to kill punks like you. <laughs> and they were like, OK, well, I'm glad. But, uh, you know, that's kind of what Dave, I uh, mean, like uh, he said in a very nice way. But, you know, like so the literal translation that Dave uh, gave from uh, Mateus was, uh, you know, he, he was uh, happy that uh, you know, we were, you know, uh, uh, in peace. Because uh, in the past he had uh, basically like shot people like us, and so uh, so uh, like uh, so those I mean like I think that's really important for like indigenous mean like some stuff like you know like uh, you know like where the village is or what river and stuff. But you know for the uh, the matates are are, are uh, really great at you know describing their own. Uh, you know, their own uh, thing so i, I wouldn't uh, uh venture into you know, like uh you know trying to speak for all the mojist i'm sure there's a lot of you know different clans and it's uh it's a complex uh uh you know a complex uh, thing And so uh but I, I i mean that would be so cool i haven't really i don't think i've ever really seen that where you have like uh like someone who uh you know grew up uh isolated and basically at war with the outside world uh you know come and uh, you know and do an interview like that that could be uh, i would recommend that
0: yeah that would be amazing maybe maybe we'll talk about that yeah, yeah. you'd be the perfect person for that
1: uh <laughs> yeah and then they can uh they can tell you the real uh unfiltered uh deal without my uh, uh interpretation of it yeah and so yeah i think that's uh that's uh i mean so so with the with the mate so um so like what they what you know they tell me so like the way the way we kind of work is so, uh, you know they we decide on like things we want to we can work on together, and then uh, so we're very clear so like let's say like we're talking about like this like advanced internship program, so where young people can travel to the existing uh, plant masters, and then study with them. So we have an, an internship program. We're, we're developing this you know, a, advanced internship program where they can go and spend uh, a lot of time. And what Chris Herndon always says is, you know, I went to, uh, you know, I spent uh, you know, 20 years in school to learn how to be a doctor. And, uh, you know, so it's the same for an indigenous uh, uh, healer. You know, it's a, it's a very long process. There's a lot to it. And just like, uh, like you know, a doctor in the U.S. or wherever has a medical practice, right? Because, you know, you practice and you get better. So it's the same with the the traditional system. So, for example, like with the Mm Matzés, then they'll say, yes, we want to do this uh, program. And so then they authorize me to speak on their behalf uh, to, like, uh, to seek funding and support for that program. So, like, I'm authorized by them to, like, uh, develop and solicit uh, support for uh, this type of uh, program so that's kind of the way we work so but other stuff then uh you know like i i'm not uh you know i'm not uh you know representative of the matthes except
0: by mutual uh agreement yeah yeah that's a really important point thank you for sharing that Speaking about Chris, so so Christopher Herndon, he's the guy you mentioned in the beginning. Who in in was it San Francisco or San Jose? You went to this talk, and he's an allopathic doctor, a medical doctor, and and you heard him uh, kind of speaking about the differences between traditional medicine and allopathic medicine. and and he's hes spent a lot of time, I think you said in Suriname or Guiana, I think also Venezuela, maybe Colombia also. Um, so really fascinating guy. He's also a guy I'd love to have on the podcast sometime. Um, what if what have you seen is that, again, that balance? Um, b- because I think that's a really important point, which you mentioned is is also not to idealize things. Like all of these systems have their benefit. Allopathic medicine has its benefit. Uh, traditional matzai's medicine has its benefit. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, they have these amazing medicines like no, no, like Akate. Um, but then also, as you mentioned, like there's dental problems and, you know, I'm also sure a lot of that has also stemmed out of change, the dietary changes they're going through introduction of sugar, loss of some traditional plants and medicines. Um, how do you see those two things coming together uh, that, uh, that, that more Western or allopathic model. And then that, uh, Motsis, which is really a, a worldview of medicine too. Yeah. So I think this is really, uh, in some sense, a very simple question. I mean, you know,
1: so, uh, so Chris is, a, is a very uh, good uh, doctor, you know, he truly cares about you know people. And so, uh, you know, the answer is you, you help the patient, right? So like what you Philosophy or dogmas are is not the what's it the case. The case is the uh, benefit and uh, you know the the outcome for the patient. So within this process with uh, with the Matesa and uh, the uh, Acate uh, Amazon Conservation Project, so uh, you know so we have a, you know a process. So the first was the encyclopedia, right? So so in other words, just like uh, kind of what what's going on. Let's just get you know, help the mates to record this stuff uh, and have a repository of this information and also a reference material, and then to turn it into like, a, a, you know, work on the living system. So uh, we had a, a healing forest initiative where the, the mates were uh, planting their uh, traditional medicinal plants uh, near their communities. And so as both a way of identifying the plants and uh, you know, having uh, nearby uh, plants that are commonly used and also uh, plants that are hard to find. So in other words, going out in the forest and transplanting, uh, difficult to find and very useful plants. And so that becomes a a teaching center and also a, uh, a, you know, the the corner uh, pharmacy, so to speak, for the community. And so now we're working on this advanced internship. So we have, uh, you know, identified the most, uh, you know, we haven't, but the, the Matses have identified the most uh, promising uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, medical students, shall we say. And then, uh, so they would then, uh, you know, uh, are going on to like their residencies and developing their own uh, practices. And so that's kind of uh, what we're working on now. And then in addition to that, uh, you know, this project has been slowed down by the pandemic and but uh, having the integration part, so in other words, that the same uh, individuals who can use the the plant medicines or plant healers in the traditional system are also trained in triage and uh, basic, uh, you know, the, uh, use of uh, you know pharmaceuticals, you know, compresses for injuries, you know, in, you know uh, injuries, uh, splinting, you know, back, you know, back, you know, like have a, a basically you know, like a paramedic uh, type uh, uh, training to respond to emergency stabilize and help to transport so so the idea isn't to you know what I mean like to try to have your philosophy but to provide uh, you know uh, the best outcomes for uh, the patients and so that's uh, that's really I think uh, the key and so that's what we're uh, aiming for and so you know like that so it doesn't matter like okay so you know they need to take an anti malarial well, there's, there's some good anti-malarials that uh, pharmaceutical companies make, so take it. Like don't, you know what I mean? Like, so if someone needs anti-malarial, you know, take it. Don't say like, uh, you know what, uh, maybe that, but uh, I think that, uh, you know, we should, uh, you know, use this other thing because that's more in alignment with my, uh, you know, philosophy. So I think that's really the key thing when it comes to uh, people's healthcare. And again, like this thing of, you know, like uh, how do you know what the patient needs? I don't know just talk to them and ask them, find out what's wrong, find out how, you know give them the options. what do you what do you want to do? How can I help you? That kind of thing instead of you know, like imposing some type of philosophy on people.
0: Are, are there things you've noticed within those communities where uh, some of the, the the plant medicine seems to be more effective and, and other things where uh, pharmaceuticals seem to be more effective? Uh, I mean, malaria, I think is a really classic example because that, that's something I've seen too being in, in, in the Iquitos area, the Amazon. Luckily, it's not a strain of malaria that's that's super, super deadly, but uh, it does seem like, you know, if you get malaria, you're better off to take the pharmaceutical. I've seen people who, who haven't done that and then end up in a really bad way too. Yeah. Whereas uh, on the same token, it does seem like there are plant medicines that are very good for, for malaria, but they also... Require a lot more work, and and more so in preventing malaria from happening in the beginning. But I've also found most people don't necessarily want to do that, <laughs> because that requires work to actually prevent something from happening in the first place.
1: Yeah. So they're you know the introduced uh, type of malaria. So most uh, you know the uh, people don't have effective treatments against the introduced uh, you know form of malaria. So, so that would be, that's a, you know, a perfect example of something where, you know, they're, uh, readily available and, uh, you know, uh, treatments for that and also, you know, using the, uh, the screening. So like when someone comes in and you don't know, you know, they have, uh, you know, fever and then, uh, you don't, you know, there could be many causes. So, so to actually to you know, do the screening and then treat that. So that's a, I, I agree. I think that's a really good, uh, you know, example of something. And then like, uh, you know, and then, you know, you also have, uh, you know, on the other side, like this kind of thing with uh, uh, the SARS-CoV-2, where, you know, you have these uh, extremely high tech, uh, you know, uh, new uh, vaccines and other treatments.
0: Did we drop, Jason? Uh, I-, I can still hear you. The, I think that, yeah, you're back. The video froze for a second, but yeah, we're still here. Okay, 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 good. Maybe uh, maybe that seems like it was interesting timing because right as you mentioned uh, SARS-CoV-2, the the internet cut out for a second.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So so like for example, like that's a case where you you have, uh, you know, like high-tech medicine. So like, uh, you know, I've had some, you know, like, uh, you know, people are, you know, like looking into the extremely high tech, uh, you know, uh, lipid nanoparticle, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, main, all this stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, and then for the Matsesto, you know, we've been, we had a, you know, a COVID relief effort. So, you know, many mates were trapped in Iquitos. And so, uh, you know, we were like scrambling around. I called you, right? And uh, we were in this kind of crisis, like trying to, all the mates that were trapped in Iquitos during the shutdown. So Bruce shut down so tight, you know, people couldn't couldn't move around and they didn't have any money, They're running out of places to stay, so it was a real crisis. So we had to, you know, uh, responsibly uh, get them back and go through all this, you know, the biosecurity, you know, the multiple quarantines and this whole, you know a uh, uh, crazy process to uh, get the mates back and uh and of course you know we're monitoring the uh the matzies. and so i i've been uh you know like uh you know they i you know i always ask him how's it going with the covid and you know they Now it's at the point where I think they're kind of rolling their eyes now. They've told me so many times the same thing, that they have a plant medicine that they've identified that uh, treats uh, COVID. And they're also using the uh, cocktail to uh, treat the COVID. And so uh, uh, it's kind of gone through the communities uh, twice now. And, uh, you know, uh, very fortunately, they haven't had any uh, fatalities. And so uh, so they've been effectively treating that with their, uh, you know, uh, traditional uh, medicines. That's, uh, that would be one example of a, a, uh, you know, something that were a, a new uh, pathogen that, that, that they have uh, so far uh, uh, treated effectively.
0: you have a sense of, of how they came to that remedy? Was it just it was something they, they observed like the effects of what COVID was doing and then they yes. began to see in their own pharmacy what they thought would be effective at treating yep. that? And yeah, so they have a, uh, like a
1: medicine that would, uh, is used for a, a dry cough Mm-hmm. So they use their traditional medicine, like dry cough medicine, and then, uh, and then, uh, yeah, that that seemed to be uh, working for them. And then, uh, and also using the uh, cocktail.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you mentioned a little bit earlier uh, this idea of climate change, and and I know that's a big topic, but uh, it, it's something. Um, which I think is becoming such a big issue and such a big political issue. And again, so much of the 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 narrative around that um, also seems to be very far removed often from, again, like the people on the ground who are experiencing these things. Often a lot of that narrative is around the Amazon, the effects of the Amazon. So I, I find it very interesting talking to people like you and, and hearing your perspective of, of someone who is living in the Amazon, who actually has experience, understanding the the way things work together, looking at things in a larger picture, and not just necessarily like picking and choosing certain Things that, that but looking at it in a more holistic perspective. So I, I know it's a big question, but what are, what are some of your thoughts on, on climate change? Okay, well, my first thought is I, I really don't like that term, uh, climate change,
1: because I think it creates a frame that's ineffective. So like, for example, like what if we said, to called it like uh, uh, global suicide, what's the issue? Global suicide is the issue, ecocide, you know, it's some other term, because like to the average person, when you say climate change, intuitively, they understand that climate is always changing. And so if you look over any time scale or any volume of space, there's going to be changes in that. So the term itself then I think leads into a bad conversation because, okay, so let's talk about climate change well, look, uh, Mount uh, Pinatubo erupted. Uh, We have uh, stochasticity in uh, in this area and this uh, this data. Uh, We have uh, strange attractors and, uh, you know, you get into all this, uh, the Milankovitch cycles and you get into this whole, you know, uh, uh, very, uh, you know, like literally complex uh, conversation. And then how's the data recorded, you know, recorded, and then, you know, you're getting into this uh, data. And so the, the conversation it, itself uh, doesn't lend itself to, you know, uh, really uh, anything clear. And because it is literally, you know, like uh, complex. So uh, in my uh, uh, view, uh, I think that uh, it's better, like, to to kind of try to reduce this into uh, something that is very uh, tangible and also very uh solvable so like uh what if what if i said like uh you know the, the problem could really be addressed uh looking at just one variable so let's call that variable uh the amount of land that's under uh industrial agriculture so let's let's think about this okay so so, how much uh, carbon emissions come from, uh, you know, the agriculture sector? So, is it 25 percent, 40 percent, and then we look at how that's calculated? Does that really include all the transport and other associated industries that contribute to that uh, that area, right? To so, to the uh, the industrial agriculture. So that that's a major contributor right there. And then, what if instead of uh, agriculture being a net emitter of uh, of CO2, and also you know uh, uh, destroyer of biomass, as we talked about earlier. What if it became a net accumulator of biomass and and uh, and also uh, you know sequestering carbon dioxide? So so the the people would say, well, oh my God, like uh, now everyone's going to starve without industrial agriculture. We'll starve, and so I would make a radical statement and just say that you know, industrial agriculture nourishes no one. So if you look at the, uh, the actual facts and, you know, realize that small farmers using something like, you know, 25% of the arable land that's uh, currently under cultivation, you know, are feeding more than half of the world's people. So most people in the world are fed by small farmers. When you look at the industrial agricultural system, then you have, let's say, ten percent is uh, goes to uh, you know uh, biofuel. You have uh, you know thirty percent going to animal feed, and then that's a very inefficient process. So that, you know that's a lot of uh, lost energy there, and then you have huge amounts of waste. And then and now you have one billion people on the planet who are obese. So that the food security issue is not you know that there's extreme poverty which is you know is manufactured but there's nowhere in the world where if you have money you can't get food you go to the most you know in the middle of a famine and uh you know get as much food as you want if you have money the issue is poverty not amount of food it's distribution and poverty that's the issue not the quantity of food there's a superabundance of food and that's why, you know, they're close to 1 billion obese people. And what are all the, the side effects, of all the health consequences of that? So by eliminating uh, industrial agriculture, uh, you know, no one is going to starve to death, just the opposite, really. And so imagine all those uh, dead fields, you know, contaminated with all the biocides and you know, those uh, monocultures. So imagine replacing those with agroforestry systems, you know, permaculture settlements and all that. So all of a sudden you start accumulating massive amounts of uh, carbon. You start, uh, you know, really uh, solving the problem. So you're, you're addressing the uh, food insecurity problem, which is, uh, you know, affecting one billion people. Not food insecurity, but obesity issue. And uh, right with healthy food and the kind of, uh, you know, like... Uh, getting away from the norm of having this uh, junk food so that they can start to address that problem. And then also, uh, you know, the surface temperatures of the earth, all that, you know, the plant matter, you know, and water cycles. Uh, and then, you know, the biggest step factor is also the ocean. So what happens with all that runoff? So the industrial agriculture runoff stops. What happens to the dead zone? Well, that starts to replenish. What happens to all the, the, the uh, you know, uh, phytoplankton? starts to come back right so you start to heal because that industrial agriculture is also a major driver of uh you know these dead zones and pollution in the ocean and then also as people start to reconnect right like become uh integrated into their uh you know into the landscape and then you know these like industrial fishing so people will you know what mean it's just a natural consequence you start to say wait a second I'm connected to my food. I like to, you know, I'm, I really have a connection to where my food comes from, what the nutritional properties are. You know, I don't want to be involved in industrial, you know, uh, stuff anymore. So, so just, uh, just, I hope people can just imagine that a world without the, this industrial agriculture. And I think, you know, in a sense, you know, the whole problem, you know, is really, I could be like a linchpin to, you know, collapse this failed uh, system. And and switch and think about all that land. There's so many millions and millions of hectares of just uh, you know these uh, like transgenic uh, you know poison land and uh, transgenic crops that are only like in Brazil. They they go to Europe to feed uh feedlots of animals that are kept in the feedlot. The animal produces the waste and pollutes the water. You just have these these systems of uh, the exact opposite of what you want, where you want to have nested systems. And uh, you know, with minimizing uh, inputs and with uh, you know, positive output, right? So, so I think really instead of uh, talking about climate change, I, I really hope people start to look at dismantling the industrial or agricultural system and really uh, solving the, the root of the problem.
0: Why do you think that's <clears throat> that's not spoken about more? Uh, you know, like. Uh, in in the US like there's these ideas of like the green new deal or internationally there's like the the Paris climate accords but none of those seem to address what you're talking about and you you also mentioned earlier kind of this idea of of the, the power of consumer choice do you do you think there's a sense of it's just easier for us to kind of put it out there on some idea that where we don't really have responsibility ourselves and, and kind of that act of making these choices. You know, you mentioned this idea of personal responsibility, that that's, that's scary in a way for people, or or do you just think there's, there, there's, there's an economic incentive to not move away from those things and that's why they're not being discussed because, You know, again, it seems like the solutions that are being discussed, uh, even in the beginning, you mentioned this idea of like renewable resources or renewable energy. And, you know, also, I think this very important idea, which you mentioned, which is really beautiful, which is like what works. And, you know, you can actually look at like a, a, a group of people in the Amazon and say like, hey, what they're doing works. Why? Well, because there's hundreds, if not thousands of years of evidence. And you, you you take maybe something like like solar or wind and and we get very passionate about it and yet it it hasn't been done and we don't necessarily know what the effects of that are as well, or maybe we do, but it just seems like something where it's easy to kind of like throw all our eggs in one basket and say, Oh, well, this is this is gonna work and I don't necessarily need to be involved in that. I know that's kind of a long question, but what are what are your thoughts yeah. on that?
1: Well, I mean, let's start out with uh, you know uh, cocoa puffs. So what, what? Right. So what? What did kids like? Right. Kids I think that's going to
0: that, that's going to be the the trailer for this episode. Is let's start <laughs> off with cocoa puffs. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So right, so so you know you start out and uh, right well, you know watching cartoons and uh, and seeing the, who are the what's the main advertiser, right? Uh, General Mills and these uh, industrial agriculture companies. So people start their life uh, with uh, you know sugary snacks and also the propaganda of these uh, you know really truly vile uh, companies that are uh, basically destroying the their and so, right? So you get once you get indoctrinated into their propaganda, then uh, you know you have to you know kind of get out of uh, you know Plato's cave, right? And uh, that can be difficult. So I think that's one of the core things. And of course, they know that. I mean, why? Why do you think you know uh, you have this sh- uh, sugary cereal thing with uh, with all the children? I mean, remember, like people, a lot of people consume uh, confuse being evil with being uh, dumb, right? I mean, you know, like it's not like oh, they don't know. They don't know that all the chemicals and sugar is addictive. They don't know about uh, you know their uh, millions of dollars worth of psychological research to uh, you know manipulate people into using their products. I mean, it, it's it's uh, completely intentional to preserve their system. So that that is, uh, I would say, one of the uh, one of the core uh, issues that we're looking at. And then in terms of like this, uh, the the so-called uh you know like a green new deal and all that kind of stuff i mean uh i think what one of the the things is to like think about like remember like the look back and say what happened with the kind of the automation and the, the, the introduction of computers so i remember being told that Listen, like uh, you know, these people are going to start using computers instead of uh, you know typewriters, and uh, and as a result of that, then uh, all the forests uh, are going to be saved because uh, no one's going to use paper anymore. Cool, right? That sounds uh, sounds good. But what happened in reality? Well, people just use more and more paper. Hey, uh, I have an encyclopedia. Uh, should I print you a copy? Sure, no problem. Boom, press the button. Boom, you print out an encyclopedia. Print this, print that, print that. So the accessibility of all that paper, you know, cheap paper, uh, electricity and all that stuff. So the, the computer actually led to an enormous increase in the amount of paper, not a decrease. And so I think uh, like uh, looking at this uh, kind of these uh, technologies and whatever, wind or solar, I mean, they, they are, uh, you know, so it, it's an add-on to the underlying infrastructure. So it doesn't replace, it adds onto it. So it's an additionality, not a movement towards uh, any type of sustainability. So I think that's really the, the key thing that, you know, for people to think about is that uh, how does this replace the existing infrastructure? How How is a lithium, open-pit lithium strip mine you're releasing this much uh, toxic you know toxic metals destroying this much water how is that different than a petroleum well i mean maybe the price of oil goes up and then you know their big lithium deposits are found so there's some type of you know like within their system some type of cost thing but how how is that better to have a big uh a, a lithium mine than uh you know a petroleum well i mean right so it's just an extractive model so so like where does your energy come from and this is like back to kind of a personal responsibility thing. So, so are you uh, extract, So, like, let's say, like, a, you know, with the case of like an electric car and then cobalt and, uh, you know, the horrors of the Congo and the, uh, you know, the mineral extraction in the Congo. So, so, like is that is that acceptable to people to to be involved with this type of car and and uh, you know uh, systematic rape uh, you know you know using uh, child uh, labor and uh, genocide, ecocide in order to obtain the uh, goods you need. So you know m- most people would say no, that's completely unacceptable. So so when things are designed and uh, energy is produced, it has to be done. Right? So the best way to do that is to control that yourself. So each bioregion, each area, and this is kind of the, the permaculture ethos. So like, you know, as a community on some level, right? Like a community level or a regional level, you know, to meet your own needs for energy, food, fuel, fiber, medicines, right? So, so once and on, on that scale, if all your basic needs are met, then, like, let's say you know you live in Minnesota or something, and obviously you know you can't grow coffee and tea, but that's great. Trade for coffee and tea. Get your bananas. Get your tropical stuff your trade, but you know, you, but not just say, well, oh, guess what? Sorry, we don't have any energy, so uh, so let's uh, let's go uh, kill a couple of million uh, people in the Middle East and steal theirs kind of thing, right? So that that would, that, I think, that's really the issue. And then the 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 kind of solar and wind, uh, the numbers just, you know, don't add up. And I, I, recommend everyone, uh, look at, uh, you know, planet of the documentary planet of the humans, which gets into that. So it's a Michael Moore documentary planet of the humans and also a book, uh, called bright green lies. And so, uh, so there are three authors to that book and they've done a really good job of, uh, expressing, uh, you know, the, uh, the problems and why it doesn't work. And so, uh, one of the other dynamics is that, like, let's say you, you, you're witnessing a murder and you call the police and the police say, OK, uh, are you a detective? You say no. And then uh, they say, well, how are you going to solve the, the problems of crime? That wouldn't make any sense. Right. You're only reporting. So a lot of times what happens is you have you know, investigative journalists or people that are describing the problem. And then those people are attacked and then they people you say oh well you're criticizing uh, wind power uh, what's your solution well then well, why should they have to have a solution they're not they're not uh, proposing a solution they, they are describing why this is uh, is not feasible and why it will only uh, increase environmental destruction and uh, and add uh, you know additionality to the footprint of, of Industrial society not solve any problems. And so, right, so that's always the, you know, that's what the, the people try to do like, uh, try to pin you, like, pin someone who is uh, like a journalist down. And they, they don't have the expertise in these areas. They are uh, providing information so that people can make their own informed decisions, right?
0: Yeah. Well, so, so so to put that on you, Bill, now, as a as a semi-expert, if if someone's living in a city, you know, they, they've got a nine-to-five job, they've got kids, you know, they're 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 trying to do the best they can. There's all this information, they don't know what's true, what's not true. What do you think are some some I don't know if simple is the word, but but some some practical choices that they can make. They would actually be in alignment with what you're talking about, whether it's where they source their food, where they're getting their energy from, uh, where they can put their money in, in a consumer way that, that's, that's creating this world, which is, is is what you're talking about, more of a, a of a decentralized moving towards locally based uh, things creating things uh, on an individual level in and in a family level community level uh, and moving away from these these massive organizations which I, I think if anyone really thinks about that and they they follow that through on a logical level they can see how that in, in the grand scheme of things is and, and can be very destructive right yeah so just uh like follow the follow the money
1: or follow the energy flow so like if you just think how is this purchase how is what i'm doing what 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 does this mean for ecosystems and for people and then all like uh i had a chance to visit a like a classic southern town uh in alabama uh like in uh, i guess in the late 1980s and it was uh you know really cool like with uh you know, a post office, a diner, uh, you know, a butcher, a baker, uh, fishing shop, and every little kind of. Uh, so basically, all lot the merchants, little store supported a family. The, the baker buys uh, you know their clothes at the general store, and the general store owner buys their the goods, and so you have a, you know a nice little uh, system. So once the uh, Walmart came to that town, I came back to the same place years later, and after the Walmart, and the town was completely boarded up. And so, so in other words, then people just decided that, you know, they would uh, go uh, get uh, Chinese stuff. So there, there was basically nothing. So I had to actually go to the Walmart, and it was just, i uh, never seen such junk. So it went from like a really cool like a, a fishing guide you know who was very helpful like talking about where to go use this lure they got all this great stuff and everything selected to literally like a, a jumbled uh mess of uh like a dangerous uh, like uh, fishing books and just it's just everything was just garbage and uh what a what an awful experience versus you know meeting you know going into someone's store and you know chit-chatting and uh you know, so I think that's really one of the key things is uh, you know to just uh, be aware of what where's your energy going, and so if your energy is going to uh, you know to uh, Jeff uh, Bezos and uh, his his stuff, and then you find yourself being uh, surveilled twenty four hours a day and having every aspect of your life controlled by him, then that's that's where your energy goes. That that will will be the consequence. So. So your energy is just, you know, it's going to go where where you where you choose it to go, and then you will reap those consequences.
0: How mm-hmm. H- have you seen um, kind of the the state of affairs? beginning to shift or change with, with the whole pandemic, with, with COVID. Uh, I think a lot of people listening to this, they're they, they familiar with the Amazon, maybe they've been to the Amazon and, you know, it also seems like there's been a lot of kind of confusion and, and information, misinformation about what's going on. Um, what do you see kind of on the ground in Iquitos being in the Amazon and, and how are things changing or not changing with, with everything that's going on with the, the pandemic?
1: Well, in uh, in Peru, it's very interesting. I think it's something like seventy percent of uh, the people uh, are kind of entrepreneurs. So that, so you know, there's not uh, kind of like a uh, situation where most people work for these big companies. There's a situation where you know people have their own little businesses, and so so people are uh, are very resilient here. So you know, so someone who used to do something that's been shut down. You know, shift to something else, so it's been incredibly difficult, but uh, there's a lot of resiliency because of, uh, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, the factory closes down in the town and then, you know, the uh, economic base of the town is uh, is completely gone. And uh, one of the things that we're seeing is that, uh, you know, people are getting back into coca production, so clearing uh, forests
0: in order to
1: uh, grow uh, coca, so there's a reemergence of uh, coca, so uh, I think that a lot of it has to do with look, a bit of people kind of losing pig this, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, system, you know, isn't going to work. I'm just going to, you know, grow coca. You know, I'm not going to mess around. I need to, you know, have, you know, have my needs met, and so I'm going to, you know, just get, you know, get into coca. So that's that's been one of the uh, factors, and then. Of course, you know. I think everyone around the world is, you know, like uh, like, like uh, you know, people like in uh, the U.S. who are, you know, preparing their bug out plans, right? So they're trying now to they get their, you know, get their uh, their Bowie knife and their, uh, you know, escape uh, bag and like what I mean. So, but I think there is a little bit of that as well, where people are kind of starting to think like, uh, you know, like uh, what if, if things don't work out? You know, what what am I going to do? And where am I going to uh,
0: kind of go -hmm. yeah it's interesting because uh where i am in the sacred valley initially i thought with with all of the pandemic like uh land availability would increase prices would go down but it's actually been the opposite because it seems like everyone is is kind of like leaving lima thinking about like, Hey, what I, I kind of do need to be more self-sufficient. I do need to be more sustainable. So kind of everyone's now moving here, uh, because there is that, that potential, um, which seems like in an ultimate sense, it, it is a good thing. It's kind of like what you're talking about, like people moving out of these centralized systems and beginning to move back more into these little communities uh, beginning to grow their food again, beginning to, to rethink or, or or reshape how they're living their lives is is that something you've noticed or you've seen?
1: Uh, a little bit, yes. Like so, like uh, people kind of like uh, you know trying to get out of Lima and then uh, seeing you know Iquitos is a place with uh, more uh, liberties and more opportunities for sure. And so I think that's you know back to the industrial agriculture thing. So so I think. You know like if people just leave cities and then go and uh you know like uh you know exploit the remaining wild areas and that's that's obviously you know going in the wrong direction but that obviously that's more appealing because then you're going into uh, a wild area right but the the tough work is uh taking those uh that uh you know non-productive land like that industrial agricultural land that's just only producing disease and you know uh, toxins and uh and then converting that land back so that's you know so so that's what i really see as it would be the solution like for a city would be people say hey you know like instead of you know like uh you know just buying this uh stuff that's poisoning us let's you know let's go and uh you know do this restoration for us. and i think that that process could happen rather uh rather quickly to, uh, you know, just begin that, you know, to get that process going and start to reclaim that land. And there's a reason like uh, why uh, Bill Gates is now the biggest uh, you know, lander here in the U.S., right? Because he sees this coming and he is at, actively trying to buy the land. So, so, in other words, that the farmers themselves, like uh, the transgenics, uh, you know, uh, stuff, like as so people are sick of that and want to move away from it then you know the risk to, to them would be then the farmers saying hey you know like uh you know this is this is wrong you know i'm going to restore my land i want to really you know live uh live on my farm and uh you know get rid of all this junk and uh and so you know so you see like the gates is and you're know, trying to just buy the land so they own the land and then if they don't sell it then they can just you know they, they think they can just continue to uh with their behaviors
0: mm-hmm you do you see do you have kind of like a, a vision of where akate your 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 organization uh, Ola, yourself do you, do you have any direction of upcoming projects or the direction things are moving in uh, and any ideas uh, about the future yeah absolutely so
1: so for akate you know we that uh, we want to uh, continue to work and then uh, the the ultimate objective is to help Uh, you know, indigenous people to uh, interface uh, with the outside world in a uh, peaceful and uh, way on their terms. So, you know, to find that space, okay and and help develop a trade, you know, sustainable economy and, uh, you know, uh, positive interactions to obtain their rights. And so that's really the vision. So to to incorporate, uh, you know, Help help them to, uh, you know, incorporate in on their terms. I mean, because they're they, you know the they're already in touch with the outside world. I mean, that that's not gonna you know they're not gonna go back into voluntary isolation. So this process has started. So the the, the real objective is to make make that process a successful process that maintains their culture and their territory. So that, that's kind of what we're working on and with uh, leadership initiatives. And also the potential, uh, you know, to help the Mapes, and also to prime this with, uh, you know, potential like, ecosystem services, natural capital, and carbon projects, in order to uh, receive the funding to uh, help the Mapes to, uh, you know, interact and to build their own, you know, sustainable economies, so on their terms. And then uh, if for for E.C.ola, then uh, you know we're, we're gonna continue like, uh, to expand our uh, product lines and so, so the idea is that uh, you know, to you know, take uh, products that are native to the forest and then uh, use those to regenerate the forest. So words like so uh, like in a permaculture uh, concept, so you have areas that you don't touch. Right. So, so in other words, take the pressure off the, uh, you know, the wild areas and then have uh, people be able to make their livelihoods uh, from the areas near their village and then actually to the forest and uh, do what's called a. And this really lays out the vision of uh, landscape scale management. So you have uh, like wildlife corridors and productive systems that are integrated into wild areas, and uh, and in this way uh, you can have like integrated pest management solutions, uh, minimize inputs, and uh, have uh, great uh, you know uh, have a, a good uh, production as well.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Well, Bill, is there anything uh, we didn't touch on that you'd like to address or anything that's on your mind?
1: Well, I think uh, i just like to, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, like I, I get the feeling like sometimes like with the permaculture or, or uh, you know, agroecology movement that people sometimes get kind of wide-eyed and so like when, when they uh, – you know, when you're asking to, you know, like uh, you know, join this movement, you know, we need more people, we need, uh, you know, we need to get to uh, you know, critical mass. People get kind of like wide eyed and they they feel like they're being like invited into some kind of battle. Right. Like we're going to be like uh, fighting, like, uh, you know, uh, lock and load, you know, hit the beach in five kind of thing. Right. And uh, and so I think it's important to say that that is the exact opposite of what the permaculture movement is saying. So the movement is really saying, like you might feel like you're, like someone might feel like they're so stressed out they're grasping onto this rope and they're holding on and they're they're, you know, and uh, you know they have to hold on to survive. And uh, and so I mean I think the the in reality that like uh, what they're perceiving is that rope they're holding on to is really just like uh, something that's like draining their energy. And it's just, they're just attached to this thing. And they're not dangling, you're not dangling. You know, you're, you are grounded, you are connected. And the, the dominant culture, the death culture needs you. You don't need it. So, you know, you can just let go. Don't let go of that rope. You don't need that culture. You know, there's nothing, it doesn't serve you. It only serves itself. It's not needed. So, so the invitation is to you know, live a, you know, a better life, not, a, not to engage in any battle. And the realization that you know, all these uh, structures, you know, these uh, you know, the violent uh, militaristic governments and the corporations, without support, they'll just collapse by themselves. You don't have to fight them. All you have to do is stop supporting them because they need you. You don't need them. And so that's the, the real dynamics. I really like people to you know keep that in mind and, and remember you know just uh, you know like no the permaculture movement, all the environmental movement, not calling for you know a battle or some type of uh, thing like that. It's just calling for a disengagement and uh, just let them uh, you know let that system collapse as a new and better system emerges.
0: Yeah, beautiful. If uh if people like what you're saying and they're they're interested in in reaching out to you or, or supporting the the matse Sakate uh, Ekoola uh what are what are ways they can go about doing that
1: Well uh, yeah so the two websites you know it's uh, akateamazon.org is the akate website and then uh ecoola.com, eco-ola.com is ekoola website and I'll just say that uh, Ecoola is a, uh, a we we provide uh, uh, products in bulk, and so we're uh, well, so we're not a uh, retailer, so we don't, we don't sell like that. So that's why we don't do a lot of uh, individual marketing, because uh, we sell you know uh, to uh, other companies and, and our suppliers for other companies.
0: Hmm. Well, great, Bill. It's it's always a pleasure. Uh, I think we win a, a little less than our, our normal time. Usually, when we talk, it ends up going about seven hours until one in the morning. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I don't know if any if anyone wants to listen to that conversation. But
1: uh... <laughs> yeah, we'll keep that private for now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, hey, man, it, it's a pleasure. It's it, it's great to see you and, and to see you're doing well. And uh, I, I really have a lot of respect for you. I. You know the the, the reason I, I really created this podcast was to, to give voice to people who I think uh, have have wisdom to share, and and I think in that way you're 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 a true philosopher and and uh, someone who's really thought deeply about these ideas, and and I think the more those voices get out, uh, it, it's just so much uh, so much better for the world, and and very much like you said at the end, it's uh, you know there, there's a very different quality when we approach something like you said uh, not as a battle but with this this state of self-empowerment and that that uh you know we we are able to to create the 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 world that we want and and how we want to live and and it actually just takes a a letting go and opening our eyes to a new way of being and uh so i I thank you for for your time and and for all you're doing with with uh, permaculture. And, uh, I think you're a great example of, of, of how to create that world.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been a real, uh, real great to talk to you and I hope to see you in person soon.
0: Yeah. Likewise. Uh, <laughs> okay, Jason. <laughs> take care. All right, Bill, take care. You too. Yeah. All right, everybody, that is it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Bill. I always really enjoy speaking with him. I, I always learn a lot when I speak to him. Uh, and I think he's got a lot of really beautiful, uh, Uh, jewels of wisdom that I think are really important to share. Um, As always, if you're able to help to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me to continue to bring on these guests like Bill. Um, Patreon is a really good option. It's a subscription service for as little as a dollar a month. You can sign up and it gives you back uh, some added benefits, which are really nice. Things like early access to shows, Q&As, bonus material. Uh, so if you're able to do that, thank you very much. It's deeply appreciated. To all of the people who have done that, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. Um, there's also the ability to donate directly via PayPal. There'll be a link to both of those in the show notes. If you're not able to do that, uh, simply going on the YouTube page, subscribe to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, that's a really big help in getting the show out to a bigger audience. Feel free to leave any questions or comments in the comments section, and then also with the audio version, going on Apple Podcasts, uh, subscribing to the show, and leaving a starred rating and a review is also uh, seemingly a small thing, but a really big help. Uh, So I think that's it. Um, I'm actually recording this episode a a bit in advance. I'm going into uh, diet, Uh, So I'm not exactly sure the following order of the guests coming on, but as always, uh, there should be some really fascinating people coming on. So thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for the support. uh, And I will see you all on the next episode.